Okay, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to today's AIW Los Angeles Las Vegas sections. Uh, a special event. We have uh, a party today, you know, have fun for the celebrating uh, International Space Station 20th anniversary. Uh, so uh, this is, you can see here, this is our um, uh, agenda today, uh, tentatively. And I uh, apologize that our section chair, Dr. Chandra Shekhar Sowani, uh, could not make it. Uh, he, the, his schedule is a little bit, uh, sometimes it's a bit different these days. So uh, we apologize. And uh, if he show up later, we'll ask him to say a few words uh, to everyone. So uh, around 1010, uh, you know, our panel led by uh, Mr. Larry Traeger will start and uh, followed by uh, Dr. Chen Yi Lu, uh, uh, the, you know, the power system talk, LJ Rocketdyne. And then at 110, uh, Mr. Liam Kennedy will talk about his uh, gizmo. Uh, I says above. Um, you know, uh, so, all right. So uh, basically, you know, uh, uh, volunteers are welcome for all AIW activities. Uh, this, you can see the email here, Gmail. This is our section chair's email. You, know, you can contact me. Uh, then we have the events uh, at our website. This is our link and the membership. And then we're running a special for uh, one year free membership before you e-membership before you join the uh, professional uh, membership. And uh, the URL is aiwa.org slash e-member. Uh, just some logistics. Uh, so uh, if any question, you are welcome to type in Q&A uh, or you can click raise hand. Uh, uh, please wait, you know, uh, you can type a question at any time and uh, the moderator uh, or the panelists, they will be able to see it or we will have in the Q&A, we can unmute you. If you raise hand, you can speak up for your question. Uh, so your internet, if it's not stable, you can try to call in. And uh, if anything happened uh, for the session, disconnected, just keep trying. Uh, it, it will be just temporary glitch. And it's just a few words about Southern California. Uh, as, as you know, Southern California is uh, heavily aerospace uh, populated. Then we have a company north of Roman building James Webb Space Telescope, uh, you know, Defense, Hornet, EA-18G, uh, Growler, Super Hornet, and, uh, you know, um, and many other like a B2 or different uh, uh, aviation or space parts. And we also have JPL, Mars Inside, Caltech, you know, um, uh, and, uh, and uh, the, the, the recent one, Mars 2020 uh, Perseverance. And uh, we have a lot of experts in the area, Aerospace Corporation, SpaceX doing space debris, uh, uh, planetary defense, the recent exciting news about the Bannu and uh, uh, Osiris Rex. And we have company Virgin Galactic, SpaceX doing space tourism, and we have very fascinating student branch uh, doing student project, aviation and the rocketry. Uh, so uh, without our, our, our volunteers, uh, council members, and uh, this won't happen, uh, the great activities, and not just event. You know, event is important, but it's not everything. We have many other important activities or, or, or efforts. Uh, and let our, uh, for example, our advisor, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Pochelle from uh, Raytheon and uh, Marsha and the from Aerospace Corporation and the Bob Brain is uh, uh, director from uh, Boeing and uh, including other uh, like Marty, you know, in uh, Las Vegas, Dennis, you know, everyone. Uh, we have educators, you know, uh, uh, it's a uh, lot uh, of great people. <clears throat> and uh, the one of very big uh, biggest advantage of joining Airboy, you can immediately enjoy the engage online. You can start to chat. Uh, you know, with other uh, AWA member, aerospace specialists, you know, members, and uh, post your uh, question or interaction with other people. 
And uh, we, we, you know, uh, even though event is not everything, but we do have, uh, you know, uh, social networking and uh, different events to keep people, uh, you know, engaged uh, with AIWA and uh, see what's going on, you know, for everything fun, you know, in aerospace. And, uh, you know, um, there are advantage of joining professional societies. There's just a few charts uh, to remind that we are actually based in um, Western VA, uh, Virginia, this is our headquarter. Our local chapter, uh, Los Angeles, Las Vegas section is based in El Segundo. Okay, so it's just a couple words of different membership, you know, uh, free educator membership and a free e-membership for trial and uh, all great uh, benefits. And uh, just a couple contact contacts uh, for our people. Uh, so we are really highly uh, honored and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's great pleasure, you know, we have a great uh, panel and uh, uh, you know speakers is really truly uh, very fascinating and fun uh, event. So we should enjoy it. So the first session uh, is is going to be led by Mr. Larry uh, Traeger. He's the director of Advanced Power System Business in Aerojet Rocketdyne. Uh, you know he previously he was the general manager of Hamilton uh, Sutherland uh, Rocket Rocketdyne, a division of Hamilton uh, Sunstrand United Technology Corporation. Larry is responsible for the overall leadership of the advanced power system business at LG Rocketdyne. Uh, the products include power system and te technology for International Space Station, the multi-mission radio isotope thermal electric generator, MMRTG, uh, as well as future generations of radio isotope thermal electric generators, mobile nuclear reactor, nuclear surface power, and the battery management system for both uh, lithium ion and the nickel zinc batteries. His team is currently responsible for designing and building the electrical power system for Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser. In addition, he is responsible, responsible for space electronics test facility, which has testing capabilities, uh, capabilities for thermal vacuum and the cycling and the vibration. And uh, MRTG, as you know, is very important for space power. Uh, it is actually used in uh, Mars Science Lab mission, which has been operating on the surface of Mars since August 2012. The second flight unit will power the rover for the Mars 2020 mission. Um, additional units will be um, earmarked for the uh, Dragonfly mission in 2026 and the future nuclear mission to deep space. Prior to his current assignment, he was the controller for the HSR business and previously served as manager of financial planning and overhead costs for Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne. He holds a bachelor's degree in uh, business administration from Ohio State University and MBA from Xavier University and completed a master in master in quality management from the National Graduate School. Following his undergraduate education, he served as an officer in the US Army and was awarded the Army Commendation uh, Medal for uh, Superior Service. So that's the uh, highly welcome, you know, uh, this is our great pleasure and honor. And uh, let's welcome Larry, Mr. Roddy Traeger, and uh, the panelists. Thank you, Larry. This is yeah. all yours. Okay. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate that very much. Uh, first, I want to say, uh, uh, everybody, uh, welcome to this uh, event. Uh, it's quite a quite an important time. Uh, space exploration seems to be picking up, and uh, we're seeing more and more work, which is great. And uh, certainly supporting the Artemis, the, the mission to go to the moon and then beyond to Mars are really uh, on the, 
projects that are out there for us to, to work on. So if you're young and you're, you're just starting out in your career, there's a lot of exciting uh, things happening. Uh, I want to say uh, Ken contacted me a week ago, so we had about one week to put this together. Uh, the, the team that was going to work this uh, had some conflicts, so they couldn't participate. So I want to thank my group that I've been able to get to, to support this. Uh, Dr. Chang Liu is also going to present later today. He's uh, works for Aerojet Rocketdyne. He's a chief technologist, uh, also a former NASA Lewis employee, uh, tremendous talent, a very bright guy. Ed Goldston uh, used to work in our group, and uh, we were all teammates together at one point. We had a lot of fun. Uh, Ed is uh, also a PhD in physics and uh, also teaches now. More Park University, but he's also a docent at the Science Center. So I thought Ed would could add a lot. He he and Chang both worked the space station for our company uh, way back when we were part of Boeing Corporation. And then Julie Zingerman's on the line. Julie is our quality manager. She's uh, has extensive experience uh, working with the astronaut community. Uh, she's uh, involved with the Space Flight Awareness Program. She runs that for our company. And, uh, and she's been to pretty much every launch to the, to the space station. So she has a lot of good information and knows a lot of the astronaut community and probably can uh, converse it, with anybody about uh, a lot of the uh, behind the scenes things that are going on in the space station. Um, Carl Weffers is our chief engineer. Uh, he, he was supposed to join. I'm not sure if he's on the line. I don't see him yet, but uh, he was going to join. Um, Carl also worked with Space Station too. So, so we've got a, a just to give you a little background. Uh, we were a part of Boeing a number of years ago, and during that time, uh, we were involved with the Space Station, uh, specifically the electrical power system. We we designed and, and, and integrated the electrical power uh, system for the International Space Station as a part of Boeing Corporation, uh, and that was. Uh, Certainly an exciting time for us. Uh, I came into our company back in 1988, 89, and that, that's when things started to, to pick up. Um, the whole space station concept actually evolved uh, back in 1984, and uh, it started with Space Station Freedom. Um, and I, I guess I, I was doing a little bit looking on the internet, and I saw that the ISS was really the ninth space station uh, to fly. You had uh, Mir and you had uh, Skylab, etc. Um, the ISS, as you know, is module. Uh, it's a, a modular uh, uh, activity that was put together over time. Uh, the first, I guess, uh, let's go, uh, yeah, well, that's fine. Th that first picture uh, is a picture of the cupola. Uh, and so uh, the cupola is, uh, it, it's, it's a uh, seven-windowed uh, uh, activity, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, a room for the astronauts to, uh, to, to veer out into space and to look at Earth. And uh, th this picture was taken uh, uh, using a 19-millimeter lens setting. Uh, and, uh, and so... So uh, this was this picture was taken STS-130. There were 135 launches uh, to the space station, uh, and so this was STS-130. So uh, this may be. Hey, Larry. 
Yeah, yeah. Just, just a quick side comment on the, the cupola and the astronauts looking out, uh, observing the Earth. Many of the astronauts have commented that it's very transformative to view the Earth as an entirety. You get up into space and you look at the Earth as a single planet. You don't see boundaries. You don't see divisions. You just feel very, very uh, tied to the whole planet. And for many astronauts, they say that's a very life-changing almost event to be able to look out that cupola and observe the Earth in real time. Yeah, I, I can only imagine what it's like to be up there looking back at the Earth. Uh, it's got to be an amazing, uh, amazing feeling. Uh, you know, uh, the, the orbit of the space station, um, you know, it's 250 miles above the Earth, so the chart says, but I think that that ranges in, you know, you have to continually boost the space station uh, into a, a path, so it'll it'll start to, to drop over time, and so you have to boost that orbit boosting. But the speed of it is 17,500 miles an hour, so um, the space station is actually the third brightest um, uh, object in the sky. You know, Venus is, is the brightest, and then Jupiter, but the space station is third. And uh, Liam uh, Kennedy's on the line. Uh, he's going to show. He's got uh, pictures beaming from the space station right now. It's going to pass over Los Angeles at about 10:30 today. But it's it's a fascinating. Uh, so let's go to chart number two. Okay, Ken. So. Uh, so, you know, we're talking uh, the 20 year celebration uh, and, you know, the, the space station uh, has, there's five agencies involved with the space station. You've got NASA, you've got Roscosmos, the Russian, uh, uh, and then you've got uh, JAXA, Japanese, ESA is Europe, and then uh, CSA is Canada. Um, so uh, we talked about the cupola, uh, ESA built ESA built the cupola. So it's, as Ed said, Ed Goldson said, it's an observation module. Um, and uh, cupola means dome in, in, uh, in Italian. Uh, but as Ed said, it's used to observe the, the earth. Uh, anybody on the line on our group, if you want to comment to what we've talked about so far, feel free. Um, but this is uh, on page uh, two. Uh, uh, that's astronaut uh, Karen, Karen Nyberg. Uh, uh, she was Expedition 37 flight engineer, and she's, she's looking out at the Earth from, uh, from the windows of the cupola. Uh, let's go to chart number three. And Larry, Karen is actually married to Doug, who was on that first space station crewed mission a couple of months ago. Okay, great. And she has the record for the longest hair in space. You can't really see it good in that picture, but... Uh, she, she has the longest hair in space. <laughs> okay. Um, so you see the facts and figures of uh, the space station. Uh, you know, I remember when we, when I first started working for Rocketdyne uh, and it was just a beehive of activity. We had a lot of uh, young engineers uh, out there uh, working and assembling uh, some of the, you know, simulating some of the, the uh, modules and so forth in the courtyard. So it was kind of fascinating to see that coming together. Um, it's, it's fairly large size. It's the size of a lengthwise, the size of a football field. Uh, it orbits the Earth 16 times a day. Um, 
and uh, and it, it, it actually covers what's what's interesting. This comment here covers 90% of Earth's population. Uh, tremendous amount of code involved. Uh, the weight uh, the weight of this thing is uh, I, I can, can be up to almost a million pounds at, at certain points. Um, but um, it's traveling at an extremely high speed. So if you look up into the sky and you're looking for the space station and you can find out on the NASA websites when it passes over the Earth, uh, you, you'll be able to see the space station. Uh, there's no lights flickering or anything like that. It looks like an airplane, but it's uh, traveling much faster than an airplane. So um, any comments, Chang or Ed uh, or Carl's on the line, any comments so far? Sounds good. Just maybe a quick uh, comment on um, early days when we were doing experiments with the solar panels. We had a set of panels on this big um, rolling device and we rolled it out into the parking lot at Aerojet Rocketdyne to sort of see what kind of uh, power readings we would get from it just you know, on a nice sunny day. And it was very, very close to what we were predicted for being actually in low Earth orbit which confirmed many people's opinions that living in Southern California is not so different from being in outer space. <laughs> yeah, I, I know uh, Chang was heavily involved with the, uh, at that time. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, uh, we put down the roof, you know, the, uh, there's a flat roof on the building 104 and uh, we put a solar array deploy over there. But compared to space, because uh, of the atmosphere, so probably we got about you know, the uh, one kilowatt per square meter, you know, sunlight from the uh, the sun. But if we are uh, at uh, the uh, space, we can get as high as the 1.4 kilowatts you know, per square meter. So you know, the average is about 1.375 around there. So that's kind of um, uh, the difference over there. So right. We, you know, when we say we we uh, we got a Exactly, so we get some correction over there. Yeah, you know, it, it, you, you guys bring back some memories about uh, where we were actually doing some uh, some testing and uh, you know extrapolating certain data at that time. Uh, one of my friends, uh, an engineer, uh, runs some engineering department now at Rocketdyne. Uh, an active kind of guy. He used to go down to. Uh, I think it was KSC, Kennedy Space Center, and he used, he was a scuba diver. So he actually would help the astronauts simulate what it's like assembling uh, hardware in space. And, uh, and so uh, I thought, what a nice job he's got. He gets to go down and have these huge tanks. Uh, we, we had various ways to do uh, the simulations and try to understand how things would perform. Chang actually, I believe you did the um, uh, algorithms and the modeling for the degradation of the solar rays, and you're you're uh, have pretty accurate uh, predictions as to what how they would uh, degrade yeah. over time. And uh, you know that's uh, that's almost the uh, took more than ten years to uh, demonstrate the previously uh, prediction is very accurate. Yeah, and. Um, um, I was going to say, uh, Julie, uh, you were you were involved way back when uh, when when things were starting to come together and uh, and, and we were building modules and so forth. Uh, 
Um, do you have any stories you can relate or anything that comes to mind? Uh, you know, it, it was one of those projects that was difficult because we had that design on paper, but uh, needed to secure funding. And I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., you know, talking to our Congress people because we ended up eventually just winning by one vote to continue building the space station. And of course, Chang and Ed probably remember the challenging times of, of certain power boxes, especially the DC to DC converter units. Um, we call them the DDCUs. Uh, we always were challenged in the space power and electronics lab with that particular box and often frustrated wondering if this thing was ever going to fly. So to celebrate something like 20 years of people flying up on that space station on Monday is, is really uh, uh, an exciting moment for all of us. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Especially, you know, for the uh, last uh, 20 years, actually, yeah, a little bit more than 20 years for the, uh, the business we were operating. And we have a zero value. Yeah, you know, um, uh, we, we actually, uh, we built the battery system, the current battery system uh, for the space station, the lithium ion batteries. Uh, they're large format cells. Uh, I think there's 30 cells in a battery box, but uh, the batteries were, were uh, recently deployed. We built 27 orbital replacement units. Uh, but the batteries were, were deployed, all of them are deployed, but they replaced the nickel hydrogen batteries on the space station that were built by Laurel. And uh, for every two of those batteries, you'd have one lithium ion battery. So, so um, Julie, you actually know some of the astronauts that actually helped deploy those batteries, I believe. Uh, uh, and then we had, a, we had a problem with it really wasn't the battery, but there was a problem. They had to replace a battery because of the, the DCDU, the battery charge discharge unit, I believe, was, was malfunctioning. So. Yeah, and, it, and the country hit a pretty significant milestone during the installation of those batteries as well, with Christina and Jessica being the first all-female, uh, what they call uh, EVA or spacewalk. Um, for the United States, actually, and, and the world. I think it was the first time we actually just had an all-female crew um, outside of the space station performing those assemblies. So a pretty significant moment. Yeah, I, I do have a photo of them, you know, later on when I show the charts. Yeah, that's very exciting. If it's okay for me to jump in, Larry, I have a, a particular story to relate specifically to what you're talking about right now. Hi, everyone. I'm Liam. Um, I happened to be um, having a visit with a contractor that was involved in building those batteries that were just installed. Uh, they were at a company in Chatsworth, I think. And, and it was on the day that Bob Benken was visiting the factory to meet with the employees. And it's uh, one of the standard things. I'm so sure, Julie, you know, you're very well up on why astronauts visit the places where uh, people are building critical uh, parts of the space station. And batteries are obviously one of the most critical things on a space station. Um, but he was there to speak to the employees. And what he shared was, thank you for all of the work that you're doing and the detail that you're um, providing in terms of the assembly, because what you do today 
will uh, be the difference between living and dying in space. <laughs> um, so uh, you just got the impression it's not an ordinary day when an astronaut comes visiting a factory where they're assembling uh, part of uh, something that's a critical operational um, uh, object on the, on the space station. So that was a, a quite an amazing trip. Um, so, and, and I'm reminded also by your other statement about, I think Julie, you mentioned something that, you know, you were working on systems. Many people here were working on systems that were um, installed on the space station, some of it 20 years ago. And uh, a lot of that is still in operation now. Yes, some has been upgraded, um, but I'm reminded by another conversation I had with someone in Huntsville, Alabama, working on the payload operation side of things um, at Marshall. And you know, he recalled when he started working on the, the program that he uh, was involved on a team that designed something that uh, is still in operation on the space station. And whenever the, um, there's some operations on station uh, with the Canada arm and it's sweeping past that area of the station, he obviously is reminded of the pride that he has in, in being involved in creating something 20 years ago that is still um, in use on the station now. Anyhow, that's, that's all I wanted to share there. Hopefully that was uh, a helpful addition to the conversation. Yeah, Liam, I, I, you know, th those are very relevant points you make. Uh, having been at, at Rockendine for so long uh, and uh, every one of our panelists uh, can comment, uh, there's a tremendous amount of support from the uh, from NASA and from the, the astronaut community. Uh, we have frequent uh, astronauts come to our facility. Julie Zingerman is involved with our Spaceflight Awareness Program where we, uh, we give awards to our uh, people who, high, who are high achievers and in, in working on space station type products. And, uh, and so uh, I've been lucky to attend a number of the launches and uh, and it's very, very, every, every speech that we hear is, is the same thing. They, they're very happy with the support. They realize that they can't, you know, getting on a, on a, a rocket engine and flying on a rocket up to the space station is one part of it, but there's a tremendous amount of effort that went into getting that. And so they, they all acknowledge that it's extremely important. Um, so uh, we are on page uh, four, I believe. Um, and and uh, uh, we talked about. Um, I think this thing is this thing is really a little outdated. This chart. Uh, Christina doesn't have the uh, the longest uh, for the for the U.S. Uh, she's actually maybe second or third. But Peggy Whitson is actually. Uh, I think she's got the longest duration. She Peggy I think was spent. Six in total with with several. I think she's had five five flights, six hundred sixty five days, um, uh, and you know, uh, you see Scott Kelly, uh, uh, and he you know he really has the record for the U.S. three hundred forty days, but the actual uh, record for the the amount of time up up in the space station is held by the Russians. So the Russians seem to spend a lot of time. Uh, his name is. Uh, Palaka, uh, Gennady 
of Apollo Doc, he spent 878 days in the space over five missions. That's that's incredible. I think the actual uh, space station uh, module that they end up spending their time in is about the size of the the 747, the cockpit of the seven the, that that uh, you know that whole area in the 747 where all the passengers are. That's about the size of the space they have to work work with. So. Can you imagine spending, you know, uh, a year up there? Scott Kelly was up there for 340 days straight. So quite a, uh, quite an accomplishment. And then, of course, uh, part of that, too, is, uh, is NASA's desire to understand if you're going to go to Mars, going to the space station, you're talking a couple hundred miles above the Earth. Going to Mars, my gosh, it takes six months to get there. And, and you know, once you go there, you can't turn around and come back and, you know, and, and think about the logistics of, of that accomplishment. Um, I heard Bill Gerstenmeyer, who used to run the human space flight for NASA, say uh, to us one time that uh, they had, I think, uh, when they're talking about getting volunteers to go to Mars, they had 5,000 people to volunteer for a one-way uh, trip. And he said they probably wouldn't live very long at that time because the just you know, being able to establish a habitat where people can breathe and so forth. But the space station is really the sounding board for uh, you know determining what's the impact of weightlessness, what's the impact of radiation, and other specific factors. Uh, and, and then the long-term isolation and confinement. What does that do to one's uh, psyche and so forth? So um, anyway, uh, this is uh, just. Uh, uh, the, the crews now, I think, are six. Is that right, uh, Julie? I think that's about it. Is six, six, or the space station uh, occupancy is about six now. It's limited to that. Is that right, right now, it's three, and it's eventually going to go up to seven. Okay. And just so you know, just kind of an interesting point. Um, your your chart is actually correct, Larry. Christina broke the record, um, Peggy's record, when she was flying here last year in the early part of this year by one day. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> so, so your chart is actually correct. Yeah. Uh, I know. I know. Peggy's got the most days in total, right? She's got 665 days in space. That's correct. Uh, and actually, um, she's. And for any astronaut, U.S. male or female, Peggy has the record. Not not for the Russian, but for the U.S. any. Any male or female astronaut, she has that record. And, and second is, is Jeff Williams. I think he's got uh, over 500 days. But uh, and then Scott has got 500 over 502. Uh, but he has the longest at one one time for the U.S. But uh, you know, it seems like the Russians. If you look at the at the amount of time that uh, any any astronauts have spent on the space station, it's dominated by the Russian astronaut for whatever reason. I'm not sure why, but uh, anyway, uh, let's go to the next chart, please. So we're on page five. Um, so, you know, I think the, the fact is, for, for various reasons, Space Station, it's an inter international collaboration. Uh, and there's reasons for that. It's extremely expensive to, to manage that space station. Uh, it's, it's billions of dollars, and I think the space station, NASA's budget's 18, 19 billion. I think the space station represents a couple million dollars. So, uh, but it's, it's it, you know, it, it, so you've got the international participation. Uh, and then, and then um, 
you know, the fact is that uh, we want to explore the, the, the solar system. And uh, to do that, uh, the space station is, is the way to go because uh, you can start to, to see what the impacts are of radiation. Um, I think Chang corrected me the other day. I was talking. I had heard Bill Gerstenmaier say the radiation exposure on the space station is, is not that much less than the radiation exposure on the surface of Mars, um, which I find that hard to believe, but I think Chang corrected me and said it's probably a little worse on that. But you can start to see the impact. And, and uh, I know uh, Ed and, and Carl's on the line too, that the impact of the astronauts, uh, you talk to a lot of these astronauts that go up to the space station, even though it's only a couple mile, hundred miles above the earth, they come back, they have a lot of physical issues, a lot of them do. And they're actually screening, a lot of them had issues with their eyes, and now they're screening uh, astronauts for certain uh, DNA to see you know, if they have certain genes that would contribute to these, these problems with their eyes. So uh, this particular chart uh, on page five, um, that's, uh, that's Jessica Mir, and she's waving at the camera during a spacewalk. Um, and uh, she's with Christina, Christina uh, Cook also, she, you can't see. Um, but uh, uh, they're working on the uh, battery charge discharge nucleus called the BCDU, which regulates the charge to the battery. So you got a, you've got these massive solar arrays and then uh, and the, you know the sun, uh, the energy from the sun, solar arrays, charge the batteries and the battery charge discharge regulates the charge to the batteries uh, and uh, that collect and distribute solar power uh, to the various systems on the on the on the uh, space station um, any comments uh, Carl uh, you're online or or uh, or Ed or anybody else on what we talked about here I just you know one thing I want to say about the space station is you know it's not just electric power system it's it's a mechanical system. It's a fluid system. You have cooling uh, concerns, uh, thermal thermal regulation throughout the station. Um, you know, so it's really a tremendous uh, effort amongst engineers of all different disciplines to make this work. So imagine you design this very complex system on the ground in segments, and you put into the shuttle, and then everything has to fit together on orbit and work perfectly the first time because you only get one shot. So. You know, when you look at this again from a from an engineering perspective, every discipline you can imagine was involved in this, and they all all had to work perfectly in harmony together to make this work. So, it's really a tremendous testament, not just for the for the for the engineers at Airjet Rocketdyne, but air engineers at NASA, and and I don't know how many different uh, large corporations and smaller companies work together to make this happen. So, it's really uh, a tremendous testament to engineering teamwork. Yeah, those are, those are strong points, Carl. Uh, you know, the atmosphere on board the ISS is very similar to the Earth's, and and to, to be able to 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 build an atmospheric uh, condition for the astronauts uh, like that is really amazing. You know, the, the other thing that 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 is interesting uh, about the space station, uh, I have to say, for at least for the electrical power systems, which our company, uh, Rocketdyne, uh, part of Boeing at the time built and or integrated i should say we had to your point carl uh, i think about the you know loral space system loral and lockheed martin built the arrays uh so forth but but there were a ton of 
sub sub tier suppliers involved in building that. And one of the things that we've talked about uh, internally with our team is all the products that we've built hardware on the space station. It's it's beyond its its uh, useful life. So so. Uh, the good thing is we build high, highly reliable quality products, and there's a tremendous amount. You, you hear about the cost. Uh, you hear about the cost of, of space and how expensive it is. But when you're operating with humans on, on a space station, they have to be able to uh, have all the bare necessities of life uh, in terms of water, food, sanitation, uh, and, and so all that is a tremendous amount of effort has gone into it. Even the exercise, I've heard some of the astronauts comment that they've come back from uh, spending time in space. They're actually stronger than they were before. At one point, the astronauts were coming back. Uh, they could hardly walk. And, uh, and, and they found that they, their physical, because you're in you know, zero gravity, their physical capabilities were diminished dramatically. So now they've put a lot of effort into the exercise. I don't know, Ed, or anybody knows about that, but I know it's 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 pretty um, uh, important part. I think the astronauts spend at least two hours a day just working on their uh, physical self. Uh, well. That's right. That's right. They spend time on a treadmill and and have uh, resistant band training. And um, at one time when we were very concerned about muscle mass degradation. Uh, now you're right, people are coming back with, with even more muscle because they've had dedicated two hours of time to work out every day and down here on earth, you don't always get that kind of time, right? Yeah, that's correct. I think we've got a, a, a Colonel Mark uh, Pastana has just joined. So welcome, uh, uh, Mark, we're, we're glad that you could join. Uh, certainly feel free to chime in. Um, uh, I know, uh, Mark was a former NASA test pilot and uh, and had worked with the astronauts in, in, in Russia um, and he's a re retired Air Force Colonel. So Mark, uh, feel free to chime in with any of us. And then Jay uh, has raised his hand to talk. So uh, uh, let uh, let Jay pose his, uh, his question. Yeah, yes, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm technically not an official panelist for this one, but uh, I did write a book called Outposts on the Frontier. And the one thing that amazes me about the ISS is that uh, there's really good engineering support for kind of the open-endedness of this. I mean, as you say, all the, all the equipment has passed its design life. And we remember how Mir started breaking down with only about 10 years of operational use. And here we are with some systems over 20 now. And the, cre the creativity of it being able to, well, like uh, the Russians using tea leaves to find out there was a leak on their uh, side of the station. But I mean, you've got to have that support for everything. And it just boggles the mind that there are people working on this and that the equipment is doing some very interesting things that it was never 100% designed to do. We hoped it would do it, but we didn't know for sure. <clears throat> we didn't know for sure what happened until it happened. That's all. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Those are great comments. I appreciate your comments. Uh, you know, uh, going back to, to uh, chart five real quick, I want to comment. Uh, so you think about the uh, 
just installing a battery. Oh, you know, you put a battery in a car or whatever. Uh, this particular event, uh, like I say, it was Jessica Meir and uh, Christina Cook. Uh, they were in the vacuums of space for seven hours and 17 minutes to swap out this failed battery. Uh, and, and so the, it was a, not the battery, but it was the BCDU, the battery charge discharge unit that failed, but they had to put a new battery. So the amount of time that it takes to do the mechanical things on the space station is way beyond what, what we would do on Earth. But, uh, anyway, um, let's go to uh, chart um, six. And, and uh, you know, Ken, if, if we're running behind or let me know, you know, we can talk faster. But uh, I think we're having some interesting dialogue. There's a, there are charts on virtually every one of those points on, on slide five that we're going to expand on. Yeah, yes. Um, so on chart six, um, you know, it, we talked a little bit about the space station and, you know, what's, 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 the, what's it for? Why do we do it? It's, you know, we talked that, you know, it's, it's, it's pressurized habitation modules, it's trusses, it's, it's, uh, Photovoltaic uh, solar rays, thermal radiators, docking ports, experimental, experimental uh, bays, and robotic arms. Uh, and so, you know, I, I got to see, um, oh, geez, I've been so lucky in my career to be able to see some of this stuff. But uh, uh, we used to go to Kennedy Space Center for the launches, and we would see um, the, uh, the shuttles that would come in after they've uh, flown in space and uh, docked to the space station. So then, you know, they'd have to refurbish the shuttles, and uh, and you and you would uh, you go into this this it was like a clean room, and you you couldn't get you couldn't touch it, but you were real doggone close. And they had uh, they had uh, the the area cordoned off, folks in uh, in appropriate gear uh, with masks, and uh, this was way before COVID, of course, but. They had their clean room suits on, and they were replacing the tiles on the bottom of the uh, of the space shuttle. And to stand underneath that and look at the size of that, and then you could climb up on these gantries and you could look down into the bay and see the Canada arm. And it was just an amazing uh, thing to see. I never forget that. And you know, you talk about uh, STS, space transportation system. So. Yes, you know, the shuttle was used to, to build the space station. The actual first module of the ISS was uh, Zarya, and that was launched in November of 1998. And that was launched by, a, a, obviously, a Russian proton rocket. Uh, and, and then two weeks later, uh, a NASA module called uh, Unity was launched aboard space shuttle flight STS-88. So I, I told you we had 135 uh, shuttle launches, and so it launched to, to, to Zarya by astronauts during the uh, the EVAs. So the EVAs, where they actually get out and they're they're in space, you know, they're uh, they're uh, they're they're in space uh, on a, on a line. They're hooked into the space station, but they're actually walking in space, so to speak. Um, anyway. Um, the first crew actually arrived, it was Expedition One, they arrived in November of 2000. And that was again, Soyuz uh, TM-31 was the uh, actual vehicle. 
Um, so uh, this particular slide uh, just focuses on the uh, uh, some of the things we've talked about, the importance of science, technology, human innovation. Uh, I always believe that uh, math and science are the pillars of any great country. Uh, if you look at any country in the history of our world that has emerged as a power, even going back to the Greeks and Romans, math and science were at the uh, fundamental. So, so just the science and the technology uh, derivatives that come out of a space station are really invaluable for, 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 for our, our country and for the other countries of the world. Um, so this was uh, photographed by Expedition 56 from a Soyuz spacecraft. Um, and um, uh, I, I guess that's all I say on that. Any other comments from our group that you wanna talk about? Okay, let's move on to seven. So uh, microgravity laboratory. Um, so uh, we talked about the speed, five miles per second, or orbiting the earth every 90 minutes, right? Um, and and the, the space station, as this slide notes, has been occupied uh, since 2000, continuously since 2000, November of 2000. So uh, uh, this was Expedition 59. Um, and so these were, uh, Christina Cook is in there. Uh, you can see her. Um, and, uh, but there are also a number of, uh, of Russian astronauts Nick Haig is in there, Anna McLean. Do you know any of those folks? Uh, you know Christina, right, Julie? Uh, I'm sure you know her. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, most of that crew I know, and 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 they come out some often and visit our sites as part of their what they call ASCAN astronaut candidate training, um, which is about a two-year period where they. Um, kind of get up to speed on the roles and responsibilities and the jobs of an astronaut and, and visit many of the, the prime suppliers during that time. So I get to know many of them first during that. And then of course, down the road as um, someone earlier on this panel was discussing, <clears throat> we go out and visit the suppliers uh, with the astronauts to kind of put, put a face to what they're working on and remind them that they're working on something that involves people, people with families and children and uh, lives just like the rest of us uh, and how important safety is in all of those operations. Yeah, Julie, you know, uh, uh, so uh, my business area has built the power for the Perseverance, uh, 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 the rover that's heading to Mars and land there in February. And, uh, and our program folks who work on that call it a dumb power source, but boy, is it complicated in terms of, uh, you know, outgassing the impact of materials that, you know, uh, we got 760 thermoelectric couples. It's uh, the heat source is, uh, is plutonium 238. And so when you start talking about safety, it's such a, an important part of every, every project that we work on. Uh, and, and, uh, and so, you know, NASA puts a big, big emphasis on safety, uh, and we've always had to to stand up to the, the standards for that. Even the batteries that uh, we're building now for our Sierra Nevada contract, uh, Chang uh, Changi Lu is uh, Dr. Lu is 
involved with the battery technology uh, quite a bit. He, he did, um, he worked on fuel cells as well when he was at NASA Lewis many years ago. Uh, but um, he can tell you that the safety that we built into the building a lithium ion battery that's safe, uh, it cost it costs millions of dollars to redesign that battery so it's a safe battery. Uh, and these are the small pen light cells similar to what, what, what you'd have on a, the Panasonic cells, similar to what you'd have on the older Teslas. And, and yet, yet, you know, when you put thousands of these together, it, it's, uh, it can be very, very uh, dangerous for, for humans. So uh, uh, certainly uh, in space, you don't have to worry, there's no oxygen, so you don't have to worry about the fires as much, but certainly on the space station where you have oxygen, you always have that risk. Um, so we're- a point, interest, a point of interest on your chart here, Larry, um, in the lower left hand that's of your, of your photo, that's Nick Haig. Nick was the one who was on the Russian Soyuz that had to abort shortly after launch. And then he launched six months later back up to the space station and that's when this picture was taken. But it was the first time on a mission to space station that we had to actually abort a launch. Yeah, that's good, good, good. And Julie, appreciate that. Um, yeah, so this just gives you a, a pictorial of, uh, you know, how complex Carl was talking about the complexity and you can see all the different elements and you know all the different countries that are involved and uh, and then you know the scientific boundaries uh, uh, for for science and and the physical and biological sciences we we work with a supplier right now and uh, one of their big contracts is uh, sending medical racks up to the space station and, uh, and they do testing on all kind of medical things. So uh, I, I, I remember uh, giving a speech many, many years ago, Julie, uh, at a space flight awareness event. And I was talking about all the byproducts that have come out of, uh, out of space, uh, Teflon and, and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, Gatorade, uh, well, I'm not sure if that was, uh, that was, that was more with the, uh, football teams in the South because of the, the humidity and the heat, but there were a lot of nutritional things that came out of that. And uh, so, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of people were shocked at, to see how many positive things that came out of the space station. And also even uh, current aircraft, uh, the, the airplanes, there's a lot of technology that has evolved because of some of the experiments in space. Uh, but you can see the continuum of, you know, you see the Kibo, the Japanese, module tranquility um chang i don't know if you're briefing this afternoon if you've got a picture of the full space station you know the one we have in our office that's kind of intriguing it's a really a detailed map of the space station i don't know if that's in your briefing or not but it, but it's really fun to look at that and see you know, all the different components this yeah. is a, yeah. Yeah, I, I do have some yeah okay okay so um so let's go to the next chart. So we are now on page nine. Okay. And um, we talked a lot about the international partnerships and, uh, and, uh, you know, and it's kind of the foundation. I mean, uh, it's pretty hard for one country, difficult for one country to take the, I mean, we take, the U.S. takes the lead, but it's going to require uh, international uh, participation to go to Mars and so forth. 
Uh, one thing I know, um, China has has made some inroads. I was surprised there. I think there's maybe four countries that have uh, uh, gone into space. Uh, Russia. I'm sorry. No, there have been a number of countries going to space, but in terms of uh, orbiting, orbiting um, the Earth, there there are not that many uh, astronauts that have done that from different countries. So China, I think China ended up, uh, was it 2003 maybe? I don't know, Chang, do you know when? But um, China is making a lot of inroads in space. India is making a lot of inroads in space. Uh, we always think the space station, uh, you know, is gonna gonna eventually come back to Earth, and it'll burn up on its way back to Earth. Uh, but then, you know, you got to start thinking. Uh, I've heard some of the heads of NASA say we'll always have a space station, but obviously they're they're looking at the gateway to space, and you're looking at the uh, uh, orbits that are substantially higher out of you know uh, beyond leo low earth orbit and so who knows uh what will happen but we we think 2028 maybe 2030 the space station will go that long and i think nasa would like to have international participation if they could um i think that's the key uh so you know this this uh basically uh it shows portions, this particular picture shows portions of five modules. Um, so, you know, you see the, uh, uh, the US Destiny Laboratory linking into the Harmony module. Um, so um, I think, uh, I don't know if there's any other comments you wanna make on that, uh, Julie or Carl or Chang. I, I can jump in a little bit um, just to add to that. Uh, you know, the longevity of the space station, certainly I've heard 2032 um, from some reliable sources uh, higher up in, in NASA. Um, but the other part of that is, of course, the um, uh, Mike Safradini, the uh, long-term ISS program manager, now leads the organization Axiom Space. And that is the uh, proposed... Um, design add-on to the International Space Station that is eventually designed, so commercial entirely, and uh, the plan is for that to be uh, jettisoned from perhaps the ancient 30-year-old uh, space station then and uh, continue on, um, you know, LEO space station at that time. So that's what seems to be the direction it's going in right now. Yeah. Yeah, you got the commercialization aspect. Uh, NASA would love to, with their focus on Artemis and the Gateway and, and Mars, uh, they would love to get more international or commercial uh, partnerships to uh, take over some of the cost. I think Jay has another point he wanted to make. Go ahead, Jay. Yes, um, concerning China, they did trial a space station test lab called Tiangong-1. That was occupied for two weeks in June of 2012. Another thing I'd like to point out as well is uh, we talk about longevity of our systems. Russian architecture goes back much further in design. The, uh, the, the Zarya module, also referred to as the FGB, uh, that design dates back to 
systems that were originally built for the Almaz station, what eventually flew a Salyut. And so it's got legacy architecture going back to the early, uh, uh, to the late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah, yeah, that, that is, uh, that, that's a very good point, Jay. The, the Russian hardware is certainly outstanding, no doubt about it. Um, actually, the picture on page nine, the top right is the Russian segment of the International mm -hmm. Space Station. It's uh, uh, this uh, features uh, the, the piers docking uh, compartment and the solar rays uh, belonging to, to Zyra and uh, Zabida. Zabida, how do you pronounce that? Zabezda. And then the bottom right, you got Dextro robot is seen in the end of uh, Canada Arm too. So. Uh, very, very nice picture. Um, let's go to page uh, 10. Let's see where I, yeah, 10, okay. So uh, you just see the, 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 the transportation systems. So you've got the Russian, uh, the Proton and the Soyuz, and then you've got the JAXA. Uh, it's interesting. Um, the, the fact that there was such a lapse in time uh, with uh, with the uh, shuttle retiring the shuttle and not and not having uh, an American uh, at you know an American uh, launch system to get get up to the space station so we relied heavily on Jackson we relied heavily on the Russian Russia was charging us an arm and a leg and of course, uh, the U.S. government did not like that. So now, obviously, you've got uh, commercial, you know, the latest uh, is SpaceX uh, has done an excellent job and uh, they had a historic uh, uh, flight to the space station this year. Um, I don't know. They've got quite a few scheduled ahead of us. Uh, Boeing is next. I don't know when they're going to launch their crew, commercial crew, but they're certainly uh, in line also. So... Um, anyway, yeah, this is the next launch in 14 days with this crew. Yeah. Uh. Okay, 14 days. Okay. Um, let's go to chart 11. Um, so we talked about the the cargo and the crew. So you can see uh, you got uh, you got uh, ERS two commercial resupply services two which we are currently working with Sierra Nevada. Sierra Nevada is targeted for, uh, that's the bottom left, that's the Dream Chaser, which is interesting. It looks like this, a uh, little bit like the space uh, shuttle. I've stood beside it and it's, it's not that long. It's 30 some feet long. And I'll tell you, it's amazing. Uh, I think the upload mass on that is uh, five, um, 5,000. Substantial. I think it had. They have the highest upload mass of any of the crew uh, cargo vehicles heading to the space station. The the uh, you can see SpaceX. They're involved with both crew and cargo, uh, and uh, they they are part of the commercial resupply services one contract. And then you got Northrop Grumman, who also has won a cargo contract. And then uh, Boeing is uh, is they haven't had their first launch yet, but that's certainly. Uh, targeted uh, in the near term. So um, 
the uh, Northrop Grumman has a Cygnus space uh, freighter, and you can see that approaching the, the International Space Station uh, right in the middle, the bottom middle, uh, and has uh, four tons of, of experience. I think uh, I think Sierra Nevada can get over five tons of uh, upload mass. Um, so you know, just delivering. Uh, supplies to the space station and the astronauts is extremely important uh, it, to, to sustain it. And we've said we've had 20, over 20 years of uninterrupted uh, service. Um, so the Northrop Grumman, uh, Jessica Muir and uh, Christina Cook, uh, uh, they, they actually were maneuvering the, uh, the Canada arm, robotic arm to capture the uh, resupply ship from Northrop Grumman. That's how they, they would dock. And then Boeing has their CST-100, the Starliner, on the, on the right. Uh, and that sits atop of uh, ULA United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket at, uh, at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, I don't know if uh, uh, Chang and I and Julie and, and Ed, I think we've had a good opportunity to go to the uh, at Kennedy Space Center and see the vehicle assembly building. Uh, at one time, the vehicle, the mass in the vehicle assembly building was uh, one of the largest buildings in the, in the United States. If you ever go in there and you look up at the, the very top of the ceiling, it's amazing. So uh, uh, many years ago, before a shuttle launch, I had an opportunity to go up on the, on the launch pad inside the vehicle assembly building and you know, right in front of us was the space shuttle looking up and you, you're, you're breaking your neck to look up how high it is, but it's vertical. And they, the doors open up on, the, uh, on the, the vehicle assembly building and they roll that out on the, they call it the crawler. And the crawler goes very, very slow. And it takes them, uh, I don't know, a day or two to get to the launch pad, but uh, it's all assembled on the launch pad in this vehicle assembly building. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. And for those of you who have, uh, have got to see that, it's a really a, kind of one of the great things of working in space. Uh, anyway, let's go to chart number. I, uh, can I chime in for a minute? This is Mark Pistana. Uh, yeah. Let's not forget our international partners. Uh, there are cargo supply vehicles from ESA and Japan also that bring cargo to the station. So I just didn't want to leave them out. Oh, that, that, that's great. I appreciate that, Mark. Yeah, no, it, once again, the focus on international. So yeah. let's, uh, let's go to, uh, uh, we're on chart 12. And so what we're seeing now is a huge uh, focus on commercial uh, commercial development. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, so NASA wants to partner with, with industry. So we've seen a lot of changes in contracting, how we contract. Uh, right now, uh, a lot of the contracts that we're seeing are, are cooperative agreements where they're asking companies to participate. Um, and uh, it's a lot different than the old cost type contracts that we experienced over the years. Uh, getting a little behind, so I need to uh, go a little quicker. So let's go to 13, uh, chart 13. So the station, we talked about the unique environment, microgravity, uh, just extreme space environment. The impact of radiation um, is brutal. And, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of the parts that we design for space, uh, we have to do... Uh, some of the, the parts, one of our biggest issues with, with providing space hardware 
is a long lead material and the, and the time it takes to get the materials. Uh, a lot of these parts maybe take a year to get. They're just not available and they have to be upscreened and they have to go through special or triple E parts is what they're called. But just the, 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 the space environment is extreme to say the least. Chang, you, you know a lot about the impact of radiation and how we design to what levels of radiation we design parts to. Also, Carl, you, you, you guys both work on that uh, frequently. Uh, any comments about that? So I think for Leo, and uh, since we have a geomagnetic sphere to protect, so the radiation from the dose point of view definitely is less than those supposed like the uh, on the moon surface. So we design about 30 to 50 K rates, you know, in silicon. And uh, for geo, for reference, probably about 100 to 150. And we'll probably use the same criteria, 100 to 150 for the lunar surface. Yeah, yeah, good points, Chang. Okay, uh, by the way, this picture was taken by Scott Kelly and uh, he's looking out uh, of the Coppola and he's looking down at Italy. And so uh, kind of quite a beautiful picture. Uh, let's go to page 14. And uh, we talked a little bit about this, all the thousands of experiments and, uh, and you know, the scientific advancements, uh, the benefits for humanity, we talked a little about that. And then education, math and science. Page 15, uh, a little more of uh, focusing on the benefits of research for the space station. So you can see the different uh, circles and, and, uh, and all the different uh, benefits uh, with, with research. Uh, it just enables exploration. We always have an interest right now uh, uh, we, we just received a contract last week for um, uh, a couple more, uh, their radioactive power engines, and uh, uh, they, uh, they are geared towards uh, Dragonfly, which is a mission to Saturn, Saturn's moon, uh, Titan, and the other one uh, that NASA will make their announcement next year, but we think there's a good likelihood that uh, NASA wants to go to Neptune and they want to go to the moon Triton. Uh, so why do they want to go there? It's because Triton has, has uh, some form of water. And uh, I've talked to Jim Green who ran the Planetary Sciences Directorate and he sat in his office and he, he pulls out a thimble out of his desk. He says, see this? I've never seen a thimble of water that didn't have some form of microbiological life. So I think the fact is that there's that uh, trying to understand the evolution of the solar system and where life existed at one point is very important. Um, Jay, did you have another question or not? I'm not sure if you not. Uh, um, not really so much. Uh, continue. I don't want to okay. slow us down. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, I got to pick it up a little bit. But, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical development, the medicines and so forth are really important. Let's go to chart 16 um, and then science, scientific advancements. Uh, uh, there, there are a lot of things that would not be, have been uh, possible without uh, getting in these unique environments. So the, um, that insert is really, um, it's, uh, it's showing the, um, uh, it's a fuel droplet. It's a four millimeter 
uh, dodecane uh, fuel droplet. And uh, you can see that uh, uh, there's a, a snap away from the droplet, leaving it free floating. And it's just, just hot, wire igniter, hot wire igniters ignite the droplet and then the test, then they start the test point uh, to start testing. But you can see the droplet burning with a hot flame, and it's a dim blue. So um, let's go to chart seven. Oh, Larry, just one quick thing. Off to the right, lower right, says AMS. That's the alpha magnetic spectrometer. Okay. That's another great example of something that could only be done in space. That device is monitoring cosmic rays for antimatter. And on the surface of the Earth, the antimatter particles and the cosmic rays would never make it all the way down. Yeah. Uh, so that was a that was quite a project to get that thing up there, but it's it's returning great scientific results. Only possible in space. Who built that, Ed? Who, yeah. Who built that? And that also for dark matter. Oh, for dark matter, yeah. Dark matter. Yeah, the neutrino count, or not neutrino count, the antimatter count helps us learn more about dark matter. Okay, excellent point. Um, any other comments? It was recently repaired. Um, there was a big, um, so one of the recent uh, EVAs just a few months ago, this, uh, this was, apart from the batteries that were very important, the AMS was uh, one of those uh, very key items that needed to, uh, needed some repair work done to it. Um, so, and that was completed with full success. Yeah, that's great. Mm, that's right. Okay. Uh, let's go to page 17. Um, so, you know, we talk about uh, weather patterns and, and getting information on, uh, on modeling the Earth's atmosphere and oceans and so forth, the ecosystems. Um, the, uh, uh, th this image was uh, taken, uh, I guess it's an image of a tropical cyclone taken from the ISS and, uh, and uh, you know, it was, um, I'm trying to think when that was, possibly back in 2014, not sure. But uh, yeah, these, these are tropical cyclones taken from the space station starting in 2014. So uh, um, let's go to next chart, 17. Okay, um, 17 is, uh, I'm sorry, let's go to 18. So, so the whole thing with the space station is, is we wanna, we wanna expand commerce. So 3D printing has really become vogue. Uh, our company has invested a lot in 3D printing uh, and, and, and it's really a precise way to manufacture parts and sub-assemblies for, for example, our rocket engines and uh, so you see here is a, a set of three cube sets, sats uh, are ejected from Japanese small satellite orbital deployer. Um, and there's a robotic arm outside the Japan, uh, Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency's Kibo lab. So this is uh, from the Kibo lab. Um, and it's, uh, this is a Canadian astronaut. It's uh, uh, David St. Jock. Um, and uh, he's photographed in front of the microgravity science uh, MSG uh, glove box uh, during the installation of the space fibers experiment hardware into the MSG work volume. 
the next chart on page 19, we talked a little about the exercise, understanding uh, the impact of, of uh, zero gravity on bone loss and muscle loss. Um, and, and I think uh, we've made tremendous, I've heard um, astronauts talk about tremendous inroads we've made with exercise and keeping the body robust. Um, uh, you know, can you imagine the impact on the body uh, traveling to Mars? It takes six months to get there unless you're, you know, with conventional chemical propulsion tech technology, it would take you six months and what's the impact of your body? So, um, so really uh, understanding the impact on the health of the crews and so forth uh, will, will help benefit future missions. Um, any comments, uh, Julie or anybody else on this? No? Okay, uh, let's go to chart 20. I'm getting a little short on time. Sorry about that. We talked there one, one kind of fun thing on the chart that you just showed. Um, it showed Sunny on the treadmill on the far right. And she actually ran the Boston Marathon on that treadmill from on orbit. <laughs> wow, she did. She ran 26 miles on the, on the treadmill. She did during the Boston Marathon, you know, the start. And she, ran, and she ran it during the, during the race is what you're saying. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a fun, fun little point of interest on your chart. I can't imagine running. I'm a, I'm a marathon runner myself. I, I, I've run maybe 12 miles on a treadmill, but 26. Wow. That's a, quite an undertaking. Uh, okay. Um, chart 20. Uh, and this is just uh, more of the same that we've talked about. Uh, um, you know, long duration environmental control, life support, uh, environmental control, life support systems, Autonomous environmental monitoring, uh, in-space manufacturing, um, spacesuits is a big deal. Uh, the spacesuits, I, I read and I don't remember how much they cost, but they're extremely expensive. And then the batteries on the space, you think of the batteries, just the battery alone on the, on the spacesuits are hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the space... Oh, one, of the, one of the points of this chart, I think, is to show the flow of the technology and the utilization of the technology into the next steps, getting us to the moon, getting us to the lunar surface, ultimately to Mars. A lot of these same technologies need to be developed and they have been developed and tested on station. And so those are stepping stone technologies that get us all the way to Mars. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, the, the, the impact of the, um, just the astronauts getting into the suits. Uh, I know, Julie, you, you know a lot about that. The, the, you know, I've talked to a number of the astronauts and, and you know, getting those suits and, the, you know, they're really rigid and uh, it does have uh, an impact on their, their shoulders and their necks and so forth. It's, it's really complicated, but they have to be that way to protect the astronauts in the radiation environment. Okay. Um, let's go to chart 21. Um, so Artemis. So I bet everybody has heard about Artemis, but what is it? Ar you know, Artemis is really, uh, it's a new lunar exploration program. And, uh, and it's, as Ed just pointed out in that last chart, to prepare humans for missions to Mars. Um, so so uh, 
you say Artemis, well, the first mission uh, to the moon was called what? Apollo, and that was in 1961. Uh, and then Artemis is uh, is a twin sister of Apollo. So that's uh, so Artemis is. Uh, you know, uh, we'll have to see how the you know current uh, system works out in terms of the elections and whether. You know, if there's a change in administration, is there going to be a change in the focus? But right now, the uh, Space Force is focused on going to the moon. A lot of the projects that we're looking at right now include a nuclear power for the moon uh, and so forth. So all in preparation to go to Mars. Uh, and so uh, it's very important that we continue. Uh, um, a lot of folks... Uh, well, we've already gone to the moon, done there, been there, done that. Let's go to Mars. Well, it's such a big step to go to Mars. And I personally believe, uh, Ed, I don't know what your thoughts are, but going to the moon first and establishing a habitat, establishing using the uh, in situ resources there to potentially develop uh, fuels because, you, you know, if you can make water, um, you know, and you can have a, you know, locks hydrogen, uh, uh, chemical propulsion, or whatever. But having people work in, a, in an environment, establishing a habitat, I think is very important for future exploration to Mars. Any comments on that, Ed? No, I totally agree. Uh, you'd like to test out all your hardware in your backyard before you go all the way to the other side of the ocean. And so that's kind of what we're doing here. We're going to get stuff working on the moon where it's easy to get back and forth before we go all the way to Mars. Yep. So let's make sure we have equipment that works so that we have a mission that is safe. Yes. So let's go to chart 22. So um, so this is, uh, we talked about, you know, now the next, next uh, steps, going back to the moon and then Mars. Uh, robotics will be a very important part of these missions. Uh, and then they, uh, they, Shane can talk about the, the solar array. We're running out of time, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chang and I have been to, uh, uh, solar array, uh, provider in the Santa Barbara, California area called DSS, the dependable deployable space systems. Uh, and we know the owner there and, and they actually want to have a contract to put bolt on arrays on this, on the, uh, on the, on the space station because the rays are not as efficient and they've lost a lot of power. Um, any comments on that, Chang? Well, I, yeah, I will cover this one. And, okay. and, uh, they have a very successful demonstration. Yeah. And we look forward to the, uh, the future space station, the, uh, the current uh, silicon-based, uh, the uh, solar array will be replaced by this the, uh, uh, simple mechanism of solar array. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. Actually, bottom right is a it's a rollout of the solar array, the Rosa. Uh, uh, so roll out solar array, Rosa, uh, and so it's that experiments deployed on the International Space Station using the Canada Arm. This was back in 2017, by the way. And then uh, you know uh, the bottom left is Expedition 60. Uh, Julie mentioned Nick Nick Hague. That's who that is. And he's conducting science uh, operations inside uh, uh, the Columbus Laboratory. Uh, so, uh, so you can see the amount of, of 
testing and science that goes on in the space station. Let's go to the next chart, 23. Hey, um, hey Ken, uh, I, I guess what's time-wise? I got five minutes. Is that about right? Uh, no, uh, the uh, uh, Dr. Lu's talk supposed to start around 11.40, uh, but if, if, if he and Liam is okay to start their talk slightly late, we can extend the panel a few minutes if you like. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, I'm good. Okay, well, I think we'll, we'll finish up here because I think we've covered pretty much, we're just kind of going over old territory. Yeah, on chart um, um, 22, uh, the, the, this is uh, this was back in 2018. Uh, it's the Hura model module, and uh, and uh, I guess uh, you know just uh, uh, enabling again the whole whole concept is get get back to, to the moon and establish a presence, uh, and you know the impact of long duration. You can see uh, Scott Kelly in the in the middle there. And uh, like I say, he's logged at one time 340 days, so literally almost a year. In the, in you know, do you know Julie any of the impacts? Because uh, they they were actually the reason they did that experiment because he has a twin brother, right? And uh, and his um, they they could measure uh, That's right. the impacts that he's had in for almost a one year mission compared to his brother's, uh, uh, you know. Uh, physical situation and see if, what, what's, what's changed. Do you know anything, what came out of that? Yeah, there's, they're um, still doing some studies on that, but um, preliminary studies have indicated some vision in issues and some chemistry within the body. Okay. Yeah, so um, on the very right picture there, um, they're looking at the impacts of um, microgravity and radiation um, specifically related. That's astronaut Chris Cassidy and uh, ESA astronaut uh, uh, from Italy participating. It was a spinal ultrasound investigation. So there's a lot of medical related that go on in space. Let's go to a chart. Also looks like it makes you lose your hair. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, just kidding. I said it looks like it makes you lose your hair. <laughs> anyway, um, chart chart twenty four: uh, the hazards of human space. Like we've talked, uh, you've, we've talked about radiation. Uh, of course, you know uh, exposure. Obviously, um, you know cancer, and and there's issues with the nervous system and so forth. Uh, your cognitive uh, functions can be impacted. And then, and then the other is the psychological. What's the impact? Uh, um, you know, uh, what's the impact to the mind where you're you're going? Let's say going to Mars, or you're, you know, six months out in space. Uh, uh, you saw the movie Ad Astra, right? Uh, that was interesting. Uh, even though it was a movie, you started thinking about, you know. Uh, the astronaut and his father, he goes and sees his father who's been there for many, many years, obviously didn't age because he you know, was in space. Uh, but yeah, just the mental side of it uh, is, is really important. And then uh, being away from earth. Uh, I mean, you know, we take for granted the, you know, the wind, the sun, the water, the oceans, the trees, 
and the and all the beautiful things we have on Earth, and being away from that, what's what's that impact? Um, and then the gravity is a is a big deal. We've talked about there's a lot of effort going into the physical exercise for the astronauts, but um, you know, seeing what that impact of gravity and and the, when they come back, they 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 grow. I don't know how many they they grow an inch or so. Uh, or more, maybe maybe an inch and a half or so. Um, any comments uh, from anybody? Yes, uh, I have a couple of comments about uh, just the, you talked about the uh, number two there, the isolation, uh, actually number two and three, the distance from Earth. And, um, you know, there's a team in Houston uh, and they're dedicated to supporting the crew with supplying them with music and film as well as arranging for family teleconferences, uh, kind of similar to what we're doing now. But you can imagine as we extend our uh, human presence out in the solar system, the time delays uh, will make this kind of impractical. I mean, the crews right now, they can even wa they watch World Cup soccer games and things like that. But I like to point out, uh, you mentioned the film Ad Astra, but I like to point out the film 2001 Space Odyssey. I thought that brilliantly depicted uh, the potential for what it might be like when uh, the character uh, Frank Poole, played by Gary Lockwood, is uh, getting his vitamin D uh, after jogging. He's uh, under a sun lamp and the birthday message comes in from his parents. And you know, with that time delay, he was just an observer. He, he couldn't talk back to them. So you can see the in, almost the indifference as he was uh, watching it and then not watching it. And the parents are so into conveying these messages, happy birthday, what's going on at home. His father says, oh, you get, you're getting your new pay rates next month. And you have to think about what does that mean to somebody on a three or five year mission to Mars, their pay rate, you know, something like that. So I just wanted to point out, a lot of people don't realize, yeah, the long duration flight have a lot more implications than just a physical separation. Yeah, yeah no doubt. Yeah, so they try to make it uh, is, is, is not the same, but you know, like you say, listening to football games or watching soccer matches or, or listening to certain music that you like or talking with your family. Those are all things that help, uh, but it, it's still, still the fact is, uh, you know, for those of us who have traveled uh, frequently and, and, and you leave the United States, you go to Europe, it's fun to go, but boy, you always are looking forward to get back. And it's, uh, it's got to be magnified, that, that, that psychological impact. On chart 25, um, uh, you're just looking at the, uh, once again, the, the push to go to Moon and Mars and how we're building the stepping stones, as Ed talked about on a previous chart. Um, so you can see um, on the left side there, that's a flight engineer, uh, Serena Chan Chancellor. Um, she's uh, holding a air and water management drawer. Uh, so it was removed from a, a life support rack inside the US Destiny Laboratory. Um, and then uh, uh, you see on the right, uh, you see an astronaut wearing protective breathing apparatus. Uh, that, that, that potentially could be used in the uh, unlikely event of, uh, of a fire or some hazardous chemical leak inside the pressurized volume. So trying to prepare yourself, if you're on a long mission, 
um, you know, if there's some some safety issue, how do you uh, uh, how do how do you uh, how do you cope with that, Liam? I think you have a question, or you you want to comment? Yeah, I was just going to add, add a couple of things. Firstly, the middle you're probably going to mention that that's uh, obviously representing the first time that astronauts got to eat food that was grown on the space station. That's uh, Chell Lindgren there in the middle top, and Scott uh, Kelly there on the right. Sorry, I can't remember the Japanese astronaut, but they're they're literally eating uh, food. Uh, grown on the space station. Uh, they said it was very tasty. Um, yeah, one more thing I'll just add about Scott um, and related to your previous slide, and you were talking about how they, um, you know, how normal life occurs for astronauts in space. Uh, I met Scott Kelly just before he was launching on his one-year mission, and he was very proud of the fact that he's the reason why there is now a projector uh, set up uh, available on the space station for uh, Monday night football, for Friday night uh, movie night, and um, so I also met the person who was responsible for uh, ensuring the projector met the requirements for spaceflight, uh, for safety, and uh, they built a, a special uh, projector screen that allows them to attach it to, um, I can't remember which module it goes into, but it's one of them where all of the astronauts can go and uh, check in and watch movies. And that's part of what happens. Um, they often get to see some of the major movies before we do, because the studios release a digital copy that is uh, uploaded uh, through the TDRS system uh, onto uh, a computer system that allows them to play that out. So comforts of home. Thank yeah. you, Scott Kelly. Yeah, great, great points. Uh, you know, um, I got the, uh, the meet uh, one. I think he was the first chain. You can remind me. I forgot where we were. Maybe Washington, D.C. We got to meet uh, the U.S. Um, civilian that got to travel to the space station uh, where the R Russians were taking up visitors to the space station at one point. And he told me he paid $50 million to go to the space station. I think he was there maybe seven or eight days. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, it's funny. He said, uh, um, he said that, you know, when he came back, uh, uh, re-entering into the atmosphere of the earth, they gave him a, a, a job to do. He, he says, I wasn't just there for the ride. He said, I had to push this handle down. And he said, I was having trouble getting it down. And it was going to affect their, their reentry into the solar system or into the uh, atmosphere. And, and uh, he said, man, that was hard to push that down. And he was talking about when he got back, uh, he, he was a swimmer. He said, I wanted to swim. And the Russians didn't want him to swim. So he said, I started swimming in a lap pool. And I look up and they let me do it. And he said, I look up and I saw these feet walking right beside me because they were so worried about the, the impact of coming back. But he insisted immediately to go, go into a pool and swim. But, uh, you know, I was saying that because I could see a day where space tourism will be a commercial venture. And, uh, and we're talking about the commercialization of space where people, there are a lot of rich people in this world, and, and say you want to go up to the space station for, for a couple 
day, two or three days, and you're willing to spend uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. Um, I could see that as being something that can happen in the future. Um, anyway, I think we're kind of at the end here. I've got one more chart on page uh, uh, 26. Um, it's just, you know, we're, we're going to the moon and we're going to the Mars. It's, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, at worst case, if we're not pushing it uh, with our own budgets and saying we got to get there, I think uh, international uh, China and India and other countries that are planning on going to Mars, and it's, it's a race just like back in the 60s, that who would be the first to go to the moon? I see the same scenario unfolding. So, uh, I think that's it. You know, we're celebrating 20 years of human space and appreciate everybody's participation. Uh, anybody in the group talking today would like to add anything else before we uh, go on to the next presentation? No? Okay. Uh, I think we're done, uh, Ken. So. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is really fantastic. You know, so much fun. You know, uh, everybody happy. You know, a lot of inside stories. So truly appreciate. Uh, so uh, that, that's uh, thank you. Thank you, Larry and all the panelists. Yeah. yeah. I want to thank the team too for coming together. Like I say, we didn't know about this so, uh, until about a week ago. So getting everybody together and Appreciate uh, everybody helping me out with this. So that was great. Good, good comments on the part of our team. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you, Larry. I think it's an exciting time. Celebrate years. Thank you. All right. So uh, um, our next uh, uh, session is the presentation by uh, Dr. Chenyi Lu. And uh, he's uh, going to present the uh, power system developed by LJ Rocketdyne. Uh, Dr. Du has more than 37 years of experience in space power system engineering and integration, including power generation, energy storage, power management, and the distribution, as well as thermal management. As the power system chief technologist, he is leading the advanced power technology development uh, transition and insertion through various NASA, DOE, and the Navy programs, as well as IRND efforts. Dasudu was the International Space Station Electric Power System uh, System Engineering and the Integration IPT lead, and he had the responsibilities of system analysis, integration, requirement validation, and verification, uh, as well as risk, risk management. He holds a doctoral degree in mechanical engineering from Cleveland State University, a master degree in chemical engineering from University of Cincinnati, and a bachelor of science degree in chemical engineering from Tonghai University in Taiwan. Uh, Dr. Lu received seven US patents and he is the author or co-author of more than uh, 30 papers. So uh, uh, it's truly our great pleasure and honor. So uh, please, please uh, let's welcome Dr. Chen Yi Lu. Uh, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Ken. So, um, the, uh, thank you, everyone. So, the uh, Ken, you want me to upload my charts? Uh, yeah, if you, if you uh, give it a try. If not, we'll try the PDF. Okay. So, I talk about PPT, so I think that's much easier for presentation. Yeah, give it a try. Okay. Uh, I need to go back to, yeah.
So I try to get a, the full screen. Okay. And I'm going to change to uh, both can be the full screen. It's, it's not full screen yet. Uh, how this time? Mm, not yet. Oh, yeah, okay. Now it's, uh, okay, it's showing up. Looks good. Okay, okay good. So um, uh, thank you. I actually, I prepared this one the uh, way before the uh, Larry the, uh, prepared his the, uh, the package. So definitely there's a lot of the uh, duplication over there because the, uh, that's always be interest topic the, uh, uh, to talk about. So what I'm going to talk more about is the uh, uh, electric power system and the, uh, uh, what will happen at that time for space station what happened right now and also for the uh, for the futures. So the first thing first, the uh, when I got this assignment, I, I, I think about, wait a minute, I went to uh, Kennedy about 22 years ago and uh, uh, this uh, celebration, you know, before launch of Unity. I said, why NASA called 20th the anniversary? Now I understand. And uh, because the uh, NASA is counting up about 20 years since the expedition launched on October 31st. That's almost exactly 20 years ago. And now I arrived to space station on November the 2nd. So prior to that time, I'm sure the, uh, this uh, last the, uh, photo and uh, presentation previously. So then, yeah, that's the uh, Russian for sunrise and uh, sometimes we call FGD. That's the launch on November 20, 1998. And uh, just about two weeks after the Unity, you know, from the American also launched the joint the uh, um, on this the uh, Zenya on December 10th, 1998. Afterwards, uh, the Vista also the uh, there, and the Shuni one picture over here just the uh, uh, also with the Doctor Progress the spacecraft. That's the photo taken September uh, year 2000. So the um, uh, for expedition one and the Soyuz send three astronaut yeah, actually one astronaut two plus not to the um, uh, space station uh, exact twenty years ago. Yes, I mentioned about they arrived there November the second. So since then, yeah, there has been the unbroken streak of the human presence on the opt-in laboratory. So I think that's uh, probably, that's the reason. And we set up the, uh, uh, this time, either we can call November the 2nd or the uh, October 31st to be the 20th anniversary because that uh, celebrate the, uh, the human occupancy the, uh, in the space station for the, uh, uh, 20 years. So that makes sense. Okay, so I solved my, <laughs> the first uh, the, uh, question. So what I'm going to do is the, um, uh, I will briefly inst introduce the uh, LJ Rocky Dine, our heritage and uh, the, uh, some work which we did and uh, right now, and uh, the, uh, then uh, goes to international, the uh, uh, space station right now is national lab and uh, definitely a last thing will be repeated as the uh, Larry's the, uh, panel, but the, uh, uh, they also have several, the uh, charts uh, has not been the, uh, shown then I concentrate on the uh, space station, the uh, power system, and uh, that's uh, 
from the power generation point of view, that's the most powerful spacecraft in space. From the energy storage point of view, and also that's the uh, most uh, energy storage the uh, spacecraft in space. So then I briefly talk about what will be the next and the Larry uh, uh, already mentioned about the uh, Artemis and the, uh, eventually will be the human to Mars. Okay, this is the, uh, the chart which I probably presented last time. And uh, that's the uh, last, the first for energy rocket down. You can see mostly uh, related to launch because our company is known to almost public about the launch vehicle and also in space propulsion. But they do have a two or three, this is over here, the uh, related to electric power. The first one is very interesting. If you look at the, at the bottom over here, it's called a SNAP 10A, and uh, that's exactly 55 years ago. And uh, at that time, Rocky Dye was the Autonomy International, that's the uh, nuclear company. And we designed, developed, uh, test, built the uh, one, the only the, uh, um, nuclear fission reactor, and we launched it with the uh, Rocky Dine, the uh, launch vehicle, and operated in space about 43 days, and uh, something happened for the uh, control, and we shut down. Right now, still in space, and we boost to the uh, polar orbit and uh, at the altitude about 700 uh, nautical miles. So right now, still over there, and probably will come back thousand years after. So that's the one, the only U.S. the uh, fishing nuclear reactor to generate the power in space. And then you look at on the right-hand side and the Larry mentioned about this, the uh, MMRTG. It's true, RTG was from before MMRTG, but this is the first multi-mission radioisotope power system. It is the radioisotope, the thermoelectrical generator, that's the RTG stand for, but it is a multi-mission and as Larry mentioned about, there's a one and F1 is operated on the Mars Science Laboratory, the currently on Mars. And then another one and called the uh, uh, AEHF is Advanced Extremely High Frequency Communication Satellites. It used the um, um, Energy Rocket XR5, uh, the whole thruster. So it is electrical propulsion. You do need a, the, uh, the PPU called a power processing unit to boost the, the, uh, the voltage. The voltage usually from the uh, solar array say is about 70 volts or 100 volts. You need to boost it to about the uh, 300 volts to 400 volts to take advantage of the high ISP. So they uh, do include the uh, uh, DC to DC power converter to regulate the the uh, voltage. So you can see the three, the um, uh, first uh, related to the uh, uh, electric power system. Uh, as I previously mentioned, and uh, definitely Energy Rocket is famous about their rocket business and uh, uh, we are developing the space launch system. And uh, this is just the one, the uh, photo, the, uh, well, I should say one, the, uh, um, talking about the, the, the uh, uh, SLS. 
Okay, um, it is the uh, space station 27th anniversary, and uh, right now it is national land. So I will I will go through it. And um, um, this over here probably already mentioned, and uh, it it is about the uh, five participating the agency as the uh, previous mention actually uh, previously that does include the uh, uh, Brazil, but they drop out. And then they uh, took about 13 years and the 41 assembly flight to fully construct and include about 232 the uh, spacewalk. And as of the uh, July 20, I think July 21 for assembly maintenance and the uh, upgrading. So it is the uh, um, US National Lab in 20, uh, 2005 by Congress. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> SI units. I, I know Larry presented several of the uh, number uh, is in English units. So it's about the uh, 109 meter long or wide and uh, 73 meter the, uh, in length and also height is about 20 meters. And it's about 450 metal ton and the, uh, the average the uh, altitude is about 400 kilometer and the inclination is about 51.64. That's interesting because if you uh, look at this one, include the Earth's the uh, uh, 23.45 angle. So sometimes for the solar beta, usually we call, and uh, will be reached about 75 degree. At that solar beta, uh, the whole orbit, you will not see any eclipse. You will always see the sun. And uh, uh, based upon 400 kilometer the altitude and uh, the um, uh, almost the uh, every 92.56 minute will orbit the Earth once. Okay, so this one, uh, I probably will drag on a little bit more the, on this one. So basic speaking, and uh, even though they say I have a three color, actually there's two color. The, uh, the pink one, that's the future the uh, module. Of course, this is a little bit of older information. I will add a little bit more. So if you look at this, the, the pink one is more on the Russian side. We call the Russian the, uh, segment. So the, um, uh, currently there are five Russian module the, uh, on space station. Previously, they plan to launch another five module to the space station. But seems like the plan change likely, they probably will drop three. They only have the uh, uh, two will be on it. One is the, they call the NACA is the multi-purpose laboratory module, MLOM. Later on, I will show you one, the photo. Uh, and the, the, uh, they also, along with the uh, European rover, the uh, arms, and they plan to launch this one late uh, next year. And the second one, which they will do, is the, uh, they call it the, the uh, birth and the node module uh, pre-chart. And that's the properties I probably should indicate. This is the uh, NACA and this is the, the uh, project. I think the project's here, okay. So th these two will probably real and uh, which they were not or even abandoned 
is they call this the uh, surface power module one and two, that's about here. And also the other one, OKA-T, that one also will, will, not, will not be continued. So that's on the Russian segment. For the American segment, I saw several private chat talking about the first one is the uh, uh, Bishop airlock module. So the people talking about that would be the uh, uh, commercially found airlock and uh, by narrow racks. And uh, they plan to fly on the uh, SpaceX, the uh, CRS-21. Uh, actually, it's about um, just in 20 some days from right now. And uh, the, uh, that one will be on the space station called the Bishop Airlock Module. There's another one also mentioned previously during the charts is the Ancient uh, module, and they plan the, uh, to launch about 2024. So that's the two, probably for sure, the uh, uh, module will add on to US segment. So through the whole years, and actually several things we previously worked on was canceled. The first one and the more important one at that time, they were kind of surprised to us and the, uh, uh, the, in the early days and the American want to put a HAP, habitation module to the space station, but later on they canceled. Then the second one canceled is the uh, centrifuge accommodation module. And we also work on because everybody needs the power. So we need to put some the uh, internal DDCU and RPCM in there. So that's kind of uh, canceled afterwards. And then there's another, the uh, US entering control module and also the uh, space station on the US side for the propulsion module, just in case the, the rest of the Russian segment the, uh, have any issue. So we have some backup, but seems like all these four, the module has been canceled. So this is the one which is to be delivered to the uh, International Space Station and uh, the uh, NACA or the uh, MLOM, just along with the uh, European robotics arm. So they are ready. I think they need uh, several assembly and uh, also the load and the uh, put into the launch vehicle uh, if they decide to uh, launch it. So the same thing happened for the uh, the birth, the preacher, and uh, the uh, which is smaller than the uh, the naka. Okay, so uh, now I will be more concentrated on the national lab, as the uh, since I previously mentioned about the uh, space station is claimed as the uh, national lab. So if you look at this one, this is a three color code. First one, the blue one is a pressurized the, uh, the section. So the uh, it's not only the, the uh, spacesuit to uh, perform this experimental the, uh, work. The second one is called the red area. That's kind of um, the super structures. Even though I call it a super structure, uh, above the, uh, the, on the super structure, they do have a servicing we call the external storage platform. And uh, just like the name cost, seems like that's the uh, storage for the uh, uh, spare, you know, or the, uh, some the uh, broken, the uh, uh, ORU. 
And uh, also they include the four express logistics carriers. And we can do some of the, uh, the vacuum, you know, external, the experimental work over there. So later on, we show several of the, uh, the photo on that one. So the, uh, besides that one, and I will concentrate on the destiny and which is the US laboratory, the uh, Columbus, that's the uh, ESA and the uh, laboratory. They also have the, the uh, external platform and the keyboard that's Japanese, the uh, uh, laboratory. They also have external the uh, uh, platform. They also have their own keyboard, the uh, robotics arm. So that's what we are looking at. And for the Russian, I don't have too much information over there. And the same time, the uh, the white, sorry, the, uh, this another color code. The white one is the for the futures. And uh, as a previous mention about Naka will be the uh, part of the laboratory module the, uh, for the Russian segment. So this is the uh, location and uh, for this, the uh, um, NASA, ESA and the JAXA the uh, uh, laboratory and uh, one is, uh, as previously mentioned, Destiny, that's the US laboratory and the keyboard, that's uh, JAXA and the Columbus, that's the ESAS, uh, uh, the uh, laboratory. And this is probably the picture is a little bit of the uh, out of date. I think that the, uh, some of this, the uh, block, which they mentioned about, they call it the, um, you know, the, uh, the rack. Um, will be available for the uh, different experimental work. And uh, so some are already ready and some is not ready. It's continued change, you would expect that will be the case. And uh, previous also mentioned about the externally, they have expressed the logistic uh, carrier adapter. So they have a four over there. And also they have a Columbus, the external platform that's outside. And also the JAXA uh, uh, also have their, the, uh, the keyboard external, the uh, uh, facilities. So um, then I will show several photo during this, the um, um, uh, assembly. And uh, uh, the first one shown you over here and the, the uh, photo power system in the, the uh, December 2002, the P6, the, uh, uh, okay, the P6 stand for the, uh, the port uh, number six. And if you look at the space station, okay, let me go back. So if you look at the space station, if you look at this picture on the left-hand side of, from my viewpoint of view, and that's the, the uh, starboard. And uh, on my right-hand side, that's the port side. And the P6, that's supposed to be located over here. But during the early time, we don't have a superstructure complete. So we mount the P6 above the Z1 truss. Okay, Z1 truss just roughly in the Z direction, the uh, uh, Z direction. So the, uh, uh, the P6, the uh, module is a full power module. Do include the solar array, do include the uh, portion of the, uh, the PMAT, do include the battery and uh, do include the, uh, the radiator for itself for thermal management and also the pump associated with it. So just another picture about the uh, 2005 
and uh, December 2006. Actually, I, I love this picture. That's uh, really seems like the uh, um, that's kind of dream if you can walk on the uh, in space and uh, just kind of flow over there. Probably a little bit scary. I don't know, but yeah, it's it's really nice the other picture over there. And uh, make sure you are put your hands on holding on something. So that's the, uh, uh, if you look at this one, the reason I pick up this picture is um, you can see the, um, uh, again, you know, on the, um, my left-hand side, that's S4, that's the starboard number four, the uh, PV module. On the right-hand side is the port side, the uh, number four, the PV modules. And uh, previously I mentioned about the P6, the, uh, um, the PV modules is sitting above this the uh, uh, Z1 truss. And the right now, since they are ready to move to their permanent location, so they retract the, uh, the whole solar array. Of course, everything happened over there later on, we'll show it to you. And the cost of the, uh, the P6, the uh, degradation is the uh, more severe than the other. The, uh, the PV module, but, but you know, the, uh, we designed the solar array is de deployable and also retractable. The track, especially after several years in operation, it's always be a little bit of challenge over there, but seems like the, uh, uh, it was successful, the, um, um, the uh, operate. So is anybody, let me stop over here. Is anybody have any question? Uh, this is Jay. Not so much a question, but as I recall, you had some issues uh, on the redeployment of the P6 solar array when it was moved, correct? That's correct. That's how I will show you some picture. And also, I think that the ISNA uh, Scott Palazewski and uh, prepared that one. That's that's a very impressive uh, picture over there. And uh, you, you can see the ISNA compared to solar array is so small. And, uh, yeah, and uh, you can clearly see when, when the, uh, they call, we call it unfold the, uh, uh, the solar array and some mechanical because there's uh, the, um, uh, the control wire and kind of peel off some portion of the, uh, the solar panel. Yeah, I will show some picture on that one. That's, that's true, that's exactly what happened for the P6 and uh, no problem for deployment. Actually, they do have some issue the, uh, during the deployment. Actually, we, we were so nervous watching it because the, uh, um, the first time P6 deployed, they are so already deployed. And uh, because the, the temperature is a little bit different, so when the solar already deployed it and they vibrate quite, a, quite a severely, we very concerned that one will broke the whole the uh, the truss and which they hold the, the panel and some probably even break the uh, the panel. So we learned that lesson, and uh, later when we do the uh, S four and the and the P four, and we kind of barbecue. Once we deploy a little bit, then we kind of barbecue. Then we deploy another session, then we'll barbecue a little bit, make sure the temperature will be uniform, then we'll continue to do that. And since then, there's a no issue for deployment. 
And uh, then for P6, before they move to the uh, permanent location, we retract the soil array. And when we try to the unfold and redeploy the soil array, yeah, do have some issue about the control wire. Because control wire, if you look at the panel, control wire is running from the top to the, uh, the bottom. So if that one is the uh, kind of kick or something, it will peel off some portion of the panel, which I will show you later about the, uh, uh, about the pictures. So is any other comment or the uh, question? Now by control wire, it kind of worked like a guide wire in a, in a blind, did it not? Like for, like for shading blinds, is that correct? The control rod is more, it's part of the deployment and they just make sure, yeah, um, you know, when we do the, it, it's not a, I would say police way. So when we deploy something, you like to have some wire to make sure the, uh, from the top to the bottom and it will be the uh, um, dimper your the, uh, vibration. So that's kind of for that purpose. If you look back at the uh, the P6 for the first time deployment, that's really scaling. You know, the, uh, they move a lot. Even later on for for different uh, the uh, solar deployment, they also vibrate. But that's kind of controllable. And once we did the barbecue and try to make sure the temperature, our thermal environment for the uh, uh, stored one and their deployment will be the same, then we'll continue. So the reason is because the, all this the solar panel is uh, on the back is a captain. And we, before we launch it, we stole that one for many, many uh, months probably. So when, when you deploy it and that uh, capital need to uh, stick out and uh, the, uh, uh, so you can expect that when they try to separate between panel to panel, they have a little movement and uh, that movement, if the, uh, uh, the natural frequency is not well in control, that movement will be uh, starting to break the, uh, the solar panel. So, it, it, it's, um, it's a good lesson learned and also it's good that the uh, uh, operation the, uh, uh, mitigate that risk afterwards. Okay, so let me go. So there's another view and you can see the shuttle coming to the, uh, the space station, August 2007. Uh, the same, the same one. I think that's the uh, the one the uh, Karen, the uh, Karen, and uh, probably the previously Larry showed the picture. is in the uh, cupola, and this one actually is STS one twenty four mission, and uh, he looks through the keyboard. This is the, in the keyboard laboratory on the uh, June tenth uh, year two thousand and eight. So this is the uh, uh, picture and about the uh, assembling and the, the, in November, 2008. And I like to see that uh, the ring of, of the earth. So the uh, um, in assembling May 2010, as almost uh, mission complete. So we called a uh, we call the assembling complete. So that's about the uh, 2011. 
So is anybody have any question? Okay, let me move forward. So this is assembly conference 2011 after the 41 assembly. As previously mentioned, we still have a further the module and due naming time and some kind of some of the ORU we call the orbital repressible the unit and which the can be repressed and maintained the in space and either just use a robotic to move and to mount it. Some is just the um, uh, need to be the EVA to uh, to do that, and so we call the ORU. That's the uh, uh, EVA or IVA. The uh, that's internal, the uh, maintainable. That's the whole power system is designed to that one. So that means we can do the maintenance work, even though the uh, for the power system. I think a space station structure wise is the uh, design for thirty years. But for the uh, our power system, and uh, it's designed for 15 years, and except for battery, which is uh, 6.5 years. But every hardware which we put on space station already they are running beyond that, the uh, design life. Oh, that's that's uh, this is the recent one, and the uh, have the, uh, the the new toilet. Uh, they call it a different way. They call the Universal Waste Management System, WMS. That's a very interesting. So you can see the uh, compare the uh, the current toilet and uh, the the new one delivered one. And they have a uh, two the bathroom on the space station. One is on the uh, U.S. segment. One's on the uh, Russian segment. So this is just delivered uh, just about twenty five years uh, twenty five days ago. So as mentioned about, yeah, I think the Larry talked a lot of this one, and for sure, the uh, this National Lab service, the microgravity and the space environmental research lab, and uh, it's interesting the uh, data over here already have more than twenty seven hundred investigation conducted the uh, from one hundred eight different country, and at any time there's a uh, two hundred fifty scientific investigation are conducted on the space station. That's really well used of the, uh, the space station. And uh, the state of arts, the, um, uh, the facilities on board the uh, space station, try to just like I mentioned about, understand the long duration human, the uh, space exploration just ready for human to Mars and uh, crew safety, microgravity, biological research, physical science, the earth and the space science, and also the uh, recently about the uh, commercial economy in the Leo orbit. So the Scott Kelly, so do you know how many <laughs> fruit over here? I can count probably three lemon and four orange and uh, how many grapefruit? I think a nine, nine grapefruit. So you add all together, 16, 16, the, uh, I can hardly see anybody on earth can do this way, the uh, maintain this, the, uh, all this uh, um, in, in the air, about 16 fruits. Okay, that's another one and uh, study the, uh, the microgravity, <clears throat> that's uh, uh, year 2005. It's not your choice and uh, watch your water bubble between 
the uh, him and also the camera. Actually, uh, most of the uh, I have some photo like this way. So you can see the image that reflected on the, uh, uh, through this the bubble. Uh, Larry also mentioned about MSG, that's the microgravity science group, the group box, and uh, you can do a lot of the uh, experimental work. Some is a uh, HESTES and some properties <clears throat> like uh, combustion, the, uh, um, the uh, inside the, the, the glow box. So one example is over here. That's always amazing. You know, whenever I, I show this one to the, uh, uh, the uh, some kind of middle school kids and uh, they always uh, uh, interesting about what's the difference between the uh, with the gravity and without gravity, even the fire and the way we look at the quite different and uh, the, uh, as shown over here. And the bio, the uh, biological research and uh, they call the space farming and uh, in the Russian segment, they grow the uh, um, multiple generation of the, uh, uh, I think it's over here, sweet pea, pears and wheat, tomato and the lettuce. And the letter, the previously the, you show, you you saw the uh, three astronauts the, uh, enjoy this the uh, uh, the farming products. That's um, uh, amazing. The uh, photo the uh, on the Earth, you know, the uh, from the space station, and also some of this the uh, um, Aurora Australia. That's the uh, um, South source the uh, uh, lights. Oh, I think everybody shown this one uh, previously and you definitely can follow the, uh, uh, the space station. That's just uh, one more picture about the, uh, the image. Okay, so um, what do our Air Rocket Dine contribution to the space as of today? So the first one and we are working on is the uh, uh, Boeing, the uh, CST-100 Starliner. And we are responsible to do this, the launch of both system engine and uh, also in-space propulsion for the uh, orbital maneuvering and active control and also pressurize the, um, uh, the vessel over there. As Larry mentioned about from electric power system, we are responsible for the, uh, the whole dream chasers, electric power system, include the power conversion unit, power distribution unit, and also the uh, energy storage unit. And at the same time, we still try to maintain uh, sustaining engineering for the space station EPS, electric power system, for the retention and also for the repairing. So that's our current uh, contribution for the uh, uh, participating for the Space Station National Lab. So I will now concentrate on the uh, uh, electrical power system. So just to give everybody a little bit of summary, and uh, we, we design and uh, integrate the International Space Station, and we call it end-to-end, -end, the uh, electric power system. That means not only from the hardware, the point of view, also from the program point of view, starting from the requirement development, then we do all this we call the V curve, and then we the uh, very then uh, verify this the requirement, 
and uh, we threw all this the testing or the analysis, then we launch it, then we operate, then we collect all the data. So that's kind of uh, really from the programmatic point of view, also from the end to end. And uh, from the hardware point of view, and we do the uh, design the electric power system from the power generation. And later on, we'll go through the, uh, the box associated with that. The, from the power generation, energy storage, power management, and the distribution. And also from the, uh, the thermal the, uh, uh, management system that's also included as a part of this the, uh, electric power system. So that's not a kind of the end-to-end uh, uh, -end from the hardware point of view. So basic speaking, the uh, uh, space station electric power system is a human radio, it's the EVA or EVRR means the robot, maintainable, and also Leo spacecraft power system. So they are the almost the uh, 20 years. And uh, the first one as previously mentioned about the uh, P6 was launched the, uh, and the operate December uh, year 2000. And also the, uh, since it's incremental, so the last uh, the uh, PV module launch and the operate is the S6, the uh, PV module, which over already over 11 years since the March 2009. So there's never been a power interruption. So always continue to provide the power. So as previously mentioned, you know, previously we designed the, the box for 15 years and uh, except for the battery. And later on we'll talk a little bit more about the battery. And then right now, almost every data showed that from the uh, uh, meantime, between failure or reliability point of view, where we exceeded the requirement which previously uh, flowed down to us. So from the um, capability point or capacity point of view, and if we, everything is uh, since as previously mentioned about the, uh, since we launch and operate incrementally. So if we put everything uh, at the same time as we call the beginning of life, and we can do 100 kilowatts continuous power. So if you think about, of course, the uh, um, on Earth and every household and probably like in my household, probably about three to four kilowatts, but not continuously. So you expect it as 100 kilowatts probably can support more than the, uh, you know, 70, 80 to 100 the household the, uh, on Earth. And this is the um, um, continuous power and uh, that's the uh, uh, because the way we generated the uh, uh, 262 kilowatts from the solar array, and also we have uh, energy storage for the uh, 421 kilowatt hours. And later on, we'll show you why solar array can generate 262, and uh, uh, then tell to be only 100 kilowatts for the user and. Uh, uh, the, the, the reason many is because we do have a uh, 35 minutes in the eclipse and we need the battery and that battery need to be charged. So half of the solar array, the power will charge the battery. And up to right now, we, uh, since we already have uh, at least uh, 11 to 20 years data and we can the uh, clear say the solar array at that time, you know, with the almost 30 years technology, we use the silicon cell and uh, efficiency is about, the requirement is about 13.9% uh, 
and uh, the uh, uh, sum of the cell can reach about 14.2. In the beginning, the cell efficiency is a little bit low, like down the, uh, with the uh, almost 200, uh, 240,000 of the cell produced and the efficiency will go up to about 14.2% and have very really good control. That's from the special lab the, uh, uh, in Selma, California. And uh, uh, with the current, if we have the same soil array size, with the current that the, uh, uh, we call the, say the uh, uh, triple junction, the Ganyasana uh, cell. So we probably will generate at least a double of the, uh, the power and say 530 the, uh, kilowatt, just if we use the current update, the uh, uh, triple junction cell which generate about 30% efficiency compared to a previous mention about 13.9 to 14.2 the percent. So because that one and the NASA always thinking about the uh, try to repress this the age, the solar array with the new one. Is anybody have a, any question? Okay, so, okay, let me, sorry. So the uh, uh, up to right now, and uh, uh, look at uh, this the uh, the different solar array. And if we count the solar array win, we have eight of that one. It's easy to see from the picture. And average wise, the um, P6 is the worst one, and they may have up to about 2.4 percent annual degradation rate. And the major reason is because P6 in the beginning, as previously mentioned, was uh, sitting the above Z1 truss. So every time when the uh, shuttle come in, they prune on it. So the, uh, from the contamination point of view, P6 gather most of the contamination. So that causes their the, uh, degradation worse than the others. And the, the best one, I think is about S4 or S6, the, uh, the solar rate. And uh, uh, with currently repressed the lithium ion battery, and we can provide the 421 kilowatt hour. And uh, also for the first time, not only for power generation, energy storage, and also for the first time, we operate the, uh, the space station at what we call the high voltage. And uh, that means the solar array will generate 160 volts, the, uh, the primary power distribution unit. Then we step down to 120 volts then we call the secondary power distribution units. Once we set up this one as our standard, and from now on, all this like Orion, like the other things, when we dock to space station, they will use 120 volt system, not only the other one, and uh, for the future, the uh, gateway or the lander uh, or the habitat on moon, if it ever happen, and all these, the, uh, the power system were designed to 120 volts. So that right now that's the international standard for the exploration. Is there any question? Um, I have a question uh, concerning now that's now 1.5 to 2.4% annual degradation. Is that average or is that a Across each solar array. Yeah, that's across each solar array. As I mentioned about P6 have a worse because they got a more shuttle prune. So the contamination 
cause is degraded more than others. And uh, uh, it's kind of average out. And the, uh, so 1.5, that's as I mentioned about probably is the, uh, uh, I can remember is, is uh, S6 or S4 so array. So that's kind of uh, because like a little bit of brand new and at the same time, they only operate 11 years compared to P6, 20 years. And you know, the, uh, for contamination, the, uh, you will get worse and worse. And uh, so that's the reason. So once you operate longer, you will accumulate the uh, degradation will be the uh, worse than, you know, you, you only about cannot be brand new or the uh, already new the uh, solar array. And as a follow-up, were the uh, solar arrays on, were, the, were the, uh, the main components of the solar arrays all built at the same time? I mean, I know they weren't put up there at the same time, obviously, but were they all built basically from the same production batch or did you guys produce, uh, produce as you learned and made improvements to the newer ones? Well, uh, you, you know, the, uh, as I mentioned about the, uh, I, I give you exactly number. The, uh, on the space station, of course, we also generate some, some for spares. There are two, 262,400 solar cells. So almost no way you will generate at one time or at one batch. So that's generated through several years and at the uh, special lab. And the special lab at that time is a part of the Boeing. And uh, so just, just about 20 minutes drive from our facilities in, in the cinema, that area. So the, um, uh, the generation of that one, as previously mentioned, the, uh, in the beginning, and you can see the, um, the normal distribution is a little bit wider because the, uh, the process control may not be the, uh, as good as later and everybody make the process improvement. And later on, they can generate about 14.2% efficiency the silicon cell. So it's, it's very large, actually it's eight centimeter times eight centimeter. So if you cut the corner out, it's about 62.5 square centimeter. It's very large. That's definitely at that time, 30 years ago, that's a very up-to-date and uh, state-of-the-art state of the, uh, silicon cell for sure. Did I answer your question? Yes, it did. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Very, very informative talk, by the way. Thanks. So uh, if you look at this, the summation about the, um, uh, you know, look at the title, I say at the year four, and you say, why are you talking about at the year four? Because that's the requirement. And, uh, and the NASA, when they flow down the requirement, they, they, they cannot, uh, ask for, you know, continuous power because they also know the solar array will and just the rest of the system will be the degraded through years. So they say, hey, I pick out one point that's at the year four and your solar array need to generate 193 kilowatts, even though at the beginning of life, it may be much more than this one. But at the year four, the minimum requirement is 193. And we have almost half of that one, a little bit more than half to charge the battery. And uh, previously we used the uh, uh, nickel hydrogen battery and we still have a 24 battery, but we have a 48 ORU and the two ORU call one battery. 
with the current technology. So you can see the technology improvement with the current technology called the lithium battery. I only need to 24 bucks, not 48. So suddenly you are specific the uh, um, energy or you can say the uh, uh, energy uh, density will be improved uh, at least 100%. And at the same time, actually the box is so large, I will give you dimension. And actually we can put more capacity into one box, but since the, uh, uh, we try to use exactly the same design from the physical point of view, not the inside technology, we want to use exactly the same. That's easier for the uh, astronaut and the robot to mount and the uh, demount that one. So the, uh, actually we can even put more the uh, uh, battery the, uh, and the storage into the, uh, the box, which we designed for this cell battery. So during the, um, for the entire orbit, say 93 minutes, sunny period about 58, then eclipse about 35. So during the eclipse and the battery provide say 106 kilowatts uh, with some uh, inefficiency or BCDU, then I can provide 96 kilowatts. Then goes through this, the, uh, we call the alpha joint. Okay, the, uh, uh, for the solar array itself at the bottom have the, uh, we call the beta joint. Beta joint try to collect the previous, I call the solar beta because the uh, sun is moving and uh, the moving quite a, quite a much is minus 75 degree to plus 75 degree is about 150 degree, uh, almost the uh, twice a year around that time. And uh, of course the alpha joint is even more because every 93 minutes you need turn, you know, 360 degree and uh, the uh, sewer, so the whole of it. So you have an 88 kilowatts uh, through this the, uh, joint. And you think about how, how could you the, uh, transmit the, uh, the power through a joint? Okay, that's, that's kind of, um, you know, interesting, you know, development and the design over there. That's a very good technology because you have all the barely, you know, and you will expect the joint is a very, very huge joint. And how you transmit the, 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 uh, the power through it. There's no wire running back and forth. They just through that barely and transmit the, uh, the power to the other side. So several small percentage, the power loss, and we got 88 kilowatts, you know, then goes through the, uh, the switching unit, then the uh, DDCU as a previous mentioned, and everything up to the um, a main bus switching unit is about 160 volts. After DDCO is 120 volts, of course, some infinity happen. So we will deliver 76 kilowatts to the uh, to the user. So that's kind of the power distribution through the whole the uh, uh, the space station and at the year four. Right now, you know, as I I know that for the last 20 years, we never go the maxima capacity. And uh, don't miss in the future, we will not because the uh, more experimental work on the space station and uh, sometimes somewhere probably we will use the full power generated by the, uh, by the solar array. So the, uh, but at least up to right now, we did not. 
So that's reason, another reason, even though we say the battery and design life is 6.5 years, and uh, um, you know, you look at it, we recently replaced our battery. So most of the battery running more than more than eight years uh, or sometimes even more. Uh, just because when we design 6.5 years, we are assuming the depth of discharge is about say 45% percent. and for the most of time and the, the, uh, the we call the DOE depth of discharge is much less than 35%. So that will enlong the, uh, the life for the uh, nickel hydrogen battery. So that's, that's the reason. We, uh, we have a one-time change, even though the other one lasts for three and a half years for repress the, uh, the battery. I'll, I will go a little bit more detail on that one. So this is the one which is Larry Prius asked me if I have some photo on it. So the, uh, uh, I started from the solar array. That's on the, uh, on my, from my viewpoint of view, it's on the, the bottom left-hand side. So I will go clockwise. So we do have a, a eight wing for the solar array. The uh, also have beta gimbal as previously mentioned about trying to the uh, um, you know trees. We have a hundred percent you know sun shining. So the, uh, we try to use beta gimbal to trace this the solar beta. And we have a eight the uh, uh, sequential shine unit. So if the the, the user as it's like mentioned. Uh, they, they cannot use 100% power we generate. And we have this, the uh, shunt units try to reduce it. So we'll short the power generate the, uh, back to the solar array. So we will pro pro provide exactly the user need the, uh, the power for the uh, space station. Then we have the uh, <clears throat> battery charging discharge unit for the uh, power regulation to charge and discharge the battery. And we have the, um, the battery and the previously nickel hydrogen right now is the lithium battery. Previously we mentioned about main switch, main bus switch unit we call MBSU, and also the uh, DCSU. DCSU also is on the uh, on the IEA just before the uh, uh, the whole power go out to the uh, uh, through the uh, the alpha gimbal. And then we have a lot of the DTCU, as the Judy previously mentioned. And uh, uh, during the design phase, we do have an issue and uh, several testing failure because this is a very complicated box. It's a DTCU is a 160 volts down to 120 volts. First one is a, for the first time we're dealing about the, uh, the DC power beyond 28 volts. So it is difficult. Secondly, the whole capability for the DDCU is a uh, 6.5 kilowatt. That's a huge, huge, huge power to uh, to uh, to be managing or convert the, uh, for this one. And um, uh, besides that one, we have a uh, uh, three different type of this the DDCU, and we have a 14 external one, and 18 put the internal one. Of course, that inside the, the core design are very similar, but the box design will be a little bit different. Besides that, we also have a two, the uh, DDCU sitting on the heat pipe and the others just sitting on the coolant. And the uh, uh, later on, we're talking about the coolant. And uh, then we do have a two in the, for the early flight and we put on the, uh, the heat pipe. 
uh, heat pipe the, uh, panel. So, so you can see complication over there. I think during the um, uh, during the CDR, we did have some issue, and uh, NASA almost uh, go to another vendor. Finally, we with all the effort, we conquer all this the issue, and we produce this one, and we verify this DDC we launch and operate. And up to right now, as I know of, there's no failure after, you know, of course, some of this one is 11 years, some of this one already almost 20 years operation. We also generate a lot this the uh, uh, RPCM, that's a, a circle breaker. And you can see the, uh, the number over here is 210 of this uh, a different type. We have a six type, some is external, some external, uh, internal. And that's the uh, uh, RPCM, which we operate. And some of this one have a very unique the, uh, future is called the current limit and try to provide more safety to the uh, power distribution units. And we also have the uh, eight uh, electronics control units that's on the IEA uh, the, uh, to deal with the, uh, the, the solar array and the battery, the uh, power. And uh, um, as the uh, single car information about the, uh, we are not only doing the power generation, energy storage and uh, the PMAP, but uh, we also do the thermal management. So with thermal management, I think the, uh, the coolant we use is ammonia, it's a waterless ammonia. So, the, uh, so we need a pump and we need the accumulator and we need some control. So that's the box, the, uh, uh, we have eight, we call the pump and the flow control box, the list over here. And we do have a radiator. And if you see this, the small things are pink out. And for us, and also have a several, I think a six, the um, um, in group of two, the uh, central, the uh, radiator. And tell to be everybody use the same cool, the same design for the, uh, the radiator. Uh, the difference is the uh, uh, central one have an eight panel. For the PV module, we have a seven panel for each the, uh, the radiator. And uh, then the last one, not least one, and uh, the, uh, we call the plasma contact. So this is uh, interesting. That's kind of come to the program at a little bit late stage because in the beginning of the program, people worry about things I very heavily participate in this one. So in the beginning, people think about you have a negative grounding and you will a solar is so huge, you will track a lot the uh, uh, charge and the electron and the, you know, your spacecraft will be the uh, highly biased from the uh, charging point of view. And if astronauts go out and they touch something, they will be the uh, charge neutral. And then they touch something, it may hurt. And then, you know, a lot the possibility of uh, adverse effect uh, such as ion spotting, such as the uh, sparking or the uh, uh, corona, all these things. So finally, and we argue, argue for almost one and a half year, finally NASA say, okay. So uh, some people say it will happen. Some people say it will not happen. So why not we, generate, we put something on the space station to make sure even it, the charging would be issue, that one will solve it. So that one is called a plasma contact. 
it continues to spill out the uh, electron to neutralize the uh, spacecraft, the uh, International Space Station charge. So we're trying to maintain the, uh, the space station, the charge, the balance will be the uh, uh, consistent with the environment. So that, that box was the uh, on the space station and uh, there were two on it. I think that the uh, usually when this, uh, the astronaut go out to the EVA, the box will be turned on and for the, the other time it will not be turned on. So that's all this, the, um, all this, the uh, box which we were responsible during the space station time. And we, as Larry mentioned about, we did the, the uh, contrail solar array to the uh, Lockheed Martin at that time, Sequential unit to Laurel at that time, right now it's Maxima, and the BCDU, and uh, also to uh, uh, Laurel, right now it's Maxima, and also nickel hydrogen battery turned to be also the uh, uh, Laurel at that time. And we do most of this the box, MBSU, DCSU, DDCU, RPCM, and uh, ECU. And Hamilton Central, at that time, we are not part of that. And uh, we belong to Boeing at that time. And the, uh, they did a pump flow control box for us. The radiators, interesting, is a company in the Texas. And one time they belong to Lockheed Martin, one time they belong to the uh, Laurel. And uh, finally, they delivered the the radiator, the company is a kind of, um, it's not existing anymore, yeah. Okay, and we did a proximal contact with this, uh, the hollow, the uh, cathode and uh, from the, uh, the government. Okay, so that's kind of um, space station, the uh, then I'm talking about now and the, uh, uh, definitely, the first one is the replacement, as mentioned about the technology improve at least 100 percent, you know, from the energy density point of view. So we we were on this contract, and Larry mentioned about we deliver 27 the uh, space station lithium battery to the space station, and you can see it's very heavy box, 428 pounds for each box, and we deliver 29 of this. And uh, we do design to 10 years life, uh, 60,000 cycle, a tremendous number over there. You really hope the uh, <laughs> your lithium battery can survive that uh, a long time and the cycle life. And uh, we did that one and we demonstrated the, uh, uh, the, the whole thing before we uh, NASA accepted this one. So Larry also mentioned we have 30 sales in series and we put the last the monitor, the uh, uh, sensor in there, 71 temperature sensor, 60 voltage sensor, and also the uh, uh, sensor, the, uh, the whole box, the, uh, uh, the voltage, uh, a lot of thing. I don't want to go so bad, but I, I want to mention about this <clears throat> very unique, the uh, future on this one. That's probably only good for the large format, the uh, lithium battery cell. That's called the charge uh, bypass. That means if we found out any, when we charge the battery, if we found out any battery cell have a, a abnormal response, we can bypass that one and the, not to charge the other box, another uh, cell, then charge the rest of it. And we do design the, the whole voltage is only, we can let the 
I think 27 in series, then we can still provide the, the power. So we can bypass three of the cell the, uh, in series. Okay, so uh, over here, um, so you can see the, the battery box and uh, the battery cell and the uh, is a GOS, uh, GS USS 134 ampere hour, the, uh, the battery cell, which is large format. And the box over here and the light on was launched by the HTV. So this is uh, showing on the uh, a little top over here is external pallet, the light on, you, you can see this one. And uh, so astronaut need to move the, uh, the uh, battery box from this external pallet to the, uh, the IEA for the, uh, the power module for, so for mounting. So this over here showing the, uh, uh, the most update information and um, um, through the whole three and a half year, uh, 12 EVA and the will replace all the 24 the uh, uh, lithium battery and uh, so the uh, all is done and uh, as of the uh, July 21 2020s and on 16 July 16 we finished this uh, at six and the uh, previous I think Julie mentioned about uh, who will replace the uh, the P6 the, uh, the battery and the something happened for the battery charging the charging unit they blew up the uh, the fuse so we need to take out the battery replace with the uh, nickel hydrogen battery and uh, until July 21st we the astronaut go back and replace the other one so we can claim the whole thing finished by July 21 the uh, uh, this year. So right now, all these 24 lithium battery is operating, provide the, the, uh, the power to the uh, space station during the eclipse time. So uh, it's a lot of interesting story about this, the uh, replacement. And uh, uh, you, you, you expect the, uh, if the, uh, <clears throat> like a S4 and the P4, and uh, they, they can use a robot. It's a reachable by the robot. So robot can, can take it out and move the new one in. And uh, so probably two, one EVA afterwards to stop, to, turn, to connect this the, uh, connector. And uh, then they can turn, turn the whole power on. So probably two EVA, you can down one PV module for the P4 and the S4. Okay, so that's what the uh, one example over here about S4. And uh, they did that one and they used the uh, robot to do all the heavy lift and the EVA let on go on and uh, connect this one, disconnect that, the, uh, uh, the connector. So, so they finish and very smoothly for the uh, S4 and the P4 replacement. And uh, the, uh, the first one, they, they do the replacement is the uh, on the P4 that's in the uh, year 2019 that's in January and uh, then they do this the uh, uh, no actually it's S4 is the uh, the first one that's a 2017 January the P4 is March 2019 and the P6 is October 2019 
and uh, S6, as mentioned, about July 16, 2020. So they finished the whole thing. So the uh, four S4 and the P4 is probably about two EVA. And um, uh, since there's something yeah, happened for the P6, then it took about five EVA to, um, uh, to finish the, uh, the P6. And uh, it also took about three EVA to finish the uh, S6 battery replacement. So total about 12 the, uh, EVA to, um, to complete this lithium battery replacement. So for the P4 and S4, since the robot can do the heavy lift, so EVA will be uh, much easier. But not for the P6 and, uh, and the S6. The reason is because the, uh, the, the space station, the uh, robotic arms cannot reach to the uh, S6 or the uh, P6. So astronauts need to go to this exposed pallet. Do you remember, please, I show you one picture, just uh, sitting on ground and this uh, ex exposed the, the pallet. So mount all this the battery on it. They need to remove that one, one by one and go to the place to repress the battery on the P6. So um, at least for S6, it took about three EVA to complete. For the P6, original supposed to be three EVA, but later on the, uh, there's a one BCDO uh, brewed a few fuse. So they need to go back and uh, repress the, uh, the new BCDO and uh, um, July 21 and this year, and they put the last battery over there, so we can claim the uh, victory. The uh, uh, July on July twenty one, the uh, this year. So that's another picture about the P six. The uh, it's it's you can see the uh, exposed the palace sitting quite a. The robot only can stand to to that far, so the astronaut need to do the heavy lift. The uh, uh, to move the, the battery from this the pallet and the, to repress that one. So, yeah, uh, I think the uh, uh, Julie mentioned about the Christine and the Jessica, and uh, that's for the first time. And uh, the uh, two female astronauts and, uh, do all the work. And uh, the, uh, as I previously mentioned, because the BCDO broken during this the, uh, P6 replacement, so they, they, they uh, went out and uh, uh, almost uh, a little bit more than one year ago, and they did uh, repress that the BCDU, the box, and uh, I think it from the uh, statement, the uh, Christina call, that's the one, and uh, Jessica Mill, that will be another over here. That's the uh, all-woman spacewalk, and that's a really memorable day. Okay, so we're talking about battery. Let's talk about solar array. The solar array, as mentioned about the previous man, say they are each solar array, and we have eight of that one. So each one is about 34 kilowatts, and the previous mentioned about the annual average annual degradation. <clears throat> Many from the, uh, we know very well about ionized radiation well, the uh, degree of the solar array, but we didn't know at that time when we do the design, how worse the ionized radiation will be. So we have a model, we do all this calculation, we calculate based upon the uh, defined environment, turned out to be, and uh, after several years of observation, 
And uh, the requirement listed in the, uh, the document called SSP 30512 uh, no, is that document is a little bit uh, less than what they observe the, uh, through the whole year. So the, uh, the ionized radiation model updated, but the, uh, since the design already done, so the, uh, from the ionized radiation point of view, the environment is a little bit worse than the requirement. Then, as I mentioned about the, for the uh, inducing environment, we call the contamination, and uh, sometimes I have outgassing, sometimes the uh, just like a shuttle coming, they have a plume, and all these the particle will stay on the so the on the solar cell, and it will degrade the performance. So we also got the micrometer and the orbital debris heat. Uh, they do, uh, they got a quite a many heat, but so small. And uh, um, unless you get a very large meteoroid heat, otherwise you can hardly see the uh, performance, the uh, degradation. But we did a calculate, you know, probably less than 0.3% every year for the micrometeoroid and of the debris. Again, that's really depends on the model or the environment which we know of. And uh, the real environment may have some of the uh, uh, different uh, the, uh, results. I also have uh, atomic, atomic oxygen, that's only for Leo, and for deep space, there's no atomic oxygen. Uh, solar array, where we do have a cover slide on it, but it will be darkened because of UV lighting. And also we threw the whole orbit and you expect the temperature vary, say, from minus 70 degrees C, sorry, I use C. Uh, to about 52 or the uh, 60 C, uh, quite a range, and it will cost the uh, some area will be darkened. And the last one is the uh, man-made for sure. That's uh, as the uh, previous mentioned, when the uh, P6, uh, retraction is no problem. When they redeploy, you can see the guide wire probably over here. You know, you can see on the top, about four list over here, and the PR somewhat is the portion of the panel. So you can see here. So I think that's uh, Scott. Yeah, Scott did it, and uh, uh, you can see the uh, on the screen the uh, the portion, the guide wire kind of PR portion of this the uh, the panel caused the uh, de uh, degradation. So that's happened for the uh, P6. Okay, so what's next? So uh, Larry also the, uh, showed this uh, very similar charts. It's um, a deployable space system and uh, they have a ROSA, the uh, solar array. And they demonstrate that one is the uh, supported by Air Force. You can see the uh, AFR, Air Force Research Lab, and uh, the uh, uh, logo over here. They demonstrate this one <clears throat> on the space station from Canadian Robotics Arm. That's the uh, uh, 2017. And uh, they did a demonstrate originally, if you only want to deploy the ROSA, because they use the passive way for the, just like, a, I would say, uh, memorable, the, um, um, you know, the um, a deployment. So you don't need a model to, uh, to deploy it. And uh, you know, uh, I, I when the people ask me how you do this one, I usually would say, you know, you have a saw, you know, the uh, you cut it, um, cut out the saw, 
you know, on one, one piece. And then you roll it and then you let it go. That's, that's roughly basic. Of course, this is much complicated than, than the straw. So, so you just, you just let, let it go and then they will deploy it. Of course, you need to use the way which you control. So you, need, you don't need a model to do the deployment. Okay, so, so they demonstrate deployment and uh, because they also want to uh, retraction. Okay, that's kind of depend on requirements. Some of these solar if like a geo satellite, you probably don't need any retraction, but for the space station, we do need a retraction. If later I want to uh, change the, uh, the solar array, for example. So then you need a model. And they did demonstrate uh, deploy, retract, deploy, retract several times. I cannot remember the third time or fourth time for the retraction, then they stuck. So they dropped out the, uh, uh, but the, the experiment, yeah, uh, it's very successful, and as they claim, because they already did it several times and uh, beyond the uh, the requirement which the uh, for the demonstration. Okay, so that's uh, my talk on this the uh, space station. I will go a little bit further to the uh, future space exploration, and definitely the ultimate goal is a human to Mars. Uh, I will show you several picture over here. And uh, I like this one. I don't know, this is a composite one, also real one, but you can see the, uh, the moon, the, uh, uh, on the background. Also, that's exactly the next destination for us return back to the moon as entering the step to the human to the Mars. So the Artemis the program, uh, let me talk on this the Artemis program from the power point of view. And um, I think, uh, how much time do I have? I think probably 15 minutes. So, okay, let's get it short. So the, um, um, during the Apollo days and uh, uh, human go to the uh, uh, moon and they, the uh, power is by, for the lander, the, uh, is by the uh, uh, fuel cell, is by the uh, acrimine fuel cell, okay? So uh, that's it, it's a fuel cell and uh, uh, provide the power, say three kilowatts for, for the uh, days and uh, then they can come back. So for Artemis and the, the first mission, probably likely 2024, go to South Pole and uh, um, will stay about 6.5 days so for the 6.5 days, don't forget uh, at that location or any, any other location on the moon, the, uh, the data is about 14 days, Earth days, okay? Another 14 days around there is uh, nighttime. So uh, 6.5 Earth day, you still well into the Sunday period. So you don't need uh, the battery, okay? But for safety, uh, you probably will have some battery for initiation or, or the uh, uh, something. So you do uh, have a solar array and you have a battery. So it's not a, uh, too much difficulty. So that's say 2024. So the uh, uh, either fuel cell or battery and the solar array will do the job. Then you come to the uh, second phase, uh, try to sustain your uh, human stay and uh, you are going to um, ISRU and do a little bit more more walk over there, and uh, you need to go through a night. 
And uh, because the night is so long and uh, 354 hours in the uh, eclipse. So uh, battery, uh, of course you can carry, carry very heavy battery. That's definitely not efficient. And uh, then the, the technology called the regenerative fuel cell can save some of the mass. The, the reason we call the regenerative fuel cell is it's a fuel cell. And uh, also you have a water electrolysis. You know, if you see the movie Martian, that's exactly, that's the way which he, uh, he, he got the water, use the fuel cell. So you can, you can the, um, um, use, you know, during the daytime, use the energy to electrolyze water to generate hydrogen and oxygen. So during the nighttime, you use oxygen and the hydrogen to through the fuel cell to generate power and water. So kind of cycle over there. So without one, you can save the mass, but if you really want to go high power and also eventually will be the uh, uh, do more work, then we, we, we need a fission power, nuclear fission power. So uh, right now, I think uh, the NASA sent out requests for information about fission surface power. So that's this, uh, we will build some nuclear reactor on the South Pole and uh, produce a, you know, 10 to 20 kilowatts and provide the astronaut. And uh, so that one definitely can easily go through the uh, nighttime, uh, of course. And uh, we also need to consider how the nuclear reactor may have some radiation, which the uh, people need to be, uh, have some kind of keep up zoom and you need to have some the, uh, um, you know, shielding to protect the astronaut. So that's kind of, that's kind of, uh, we call it a surface power. So you do have an option in the early days and ultimately, and you need uh, the uh, nuclear power for the, uh, for the moon surface, also for the Mars surface. Of course, on, on, the, on Mars, you can have solar array. And uh, once you have a dust tone and that solar array produce probably less than 20% of the power. So if you want to have a, a steady power source, you probably also need the efficient surface power. So that's kind of uh, the future. And uh, uh, definitely that will be, um, uh, will be a challenge in uh, how we produce that one, how we build that one, how we demonstrate that one, how we launch that one, then we, how we the, um, uh, put on the moon and how, how we the, uh, uh, operate that one and how you, uh, keep the astronaut and all the power um, electronic will be, you know, functioning or have a good reliability and uh, the astronaut will be the, uh, not get too much the, uh, the radiation from the reactor itself because reactor have a major concern. It's not only about the radiation, but also neutron the radiation. So that's, a, that's definitely will be a, the, the challenge for the power system. Okay, so this one just lists uh, what uh, um, I think not the uh, previous Larry mentioned about we, we have a getaway for the Mars and through the time you have a transfer vehicle go to the uh, low lunar orbit, then you have a lander go to the, uh, the moon surface, then you in the early days I mentioned about have a solar array or the uh, battery or fuel cell you can survive for the daytime. And uh, if you want to stay nighttime, 
then you need a regen fuel cell, uh, regenerative fuel cell, or you need a fishing surface power for the uh, uh, for the Artemis, the uh, sustainable, the uh, stay on the uh, on the moon, and uh, you can use the same technology, especially for the fishing surface power, eventually for the human to Mars. So I think that's uh, what I have. I may still have a uh, Ken. How, how much time do I have for the question and answer? Uh, yeah, it, uh, next talk supposed to start at one ten, but I think uh, Liam will be okay if, if uh, we got more questions. A few minutes, yeah. Don't don't worry, it should be okay. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. So let me stop sharing. I can see everyone. So anybody have any question? Uh. Yes, yes, sir. Um, now, you were mentioning that there's like a form of uh, of uh, of like uh, like a like a plasma, like a electrical suppressor, as it were, that they turn on uh, when the astronauts go out and do AVAs. Is that correct? Well, that's kind of uh, we call it a plasma contact and uh, try to uh, discharge electron, try to balance the. Uh, the charge of the uh, space station. Yeah. Right, right. Because uh, I interviewed uh, Scott Perezinski about his uh, spacewalk, and he talked about well, one of the concerns there, which was a little different, being that close to a solar array, there was a concern that damage might produce electrical arcing. What a lot of people don't realize is when you're in e doing EVA in a suit, you're not in a oxygen-nitrogen environment. You're in a 100% oxygen environment. So... Uh, even though it's only about 3.6 pounds PSI, there was a concern about arcing in the suit, even though it was a minute possibility, uh, potentially causing a fire danger. So uh, it was quite funny when he was on the boom arm and uh, Paulo Nespoli was reading him through the procedures and he said, wow, that's a lot of things I can't touch. Is there anything I can touch? And Paulo jokingly goes, wait a minute, that's only page one. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's 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 definitely is a concern. That's you know we we argue almost. I I heavily participate that one starting from the beginning. We even have a tiger team trying to resolve it. Finally, everybody say, okay, let's put down our argument and put the plasma contact on it, and uh, it will solve all the issue. And it turned out to be you know during the normal operation days, plasma contact. Doesn't have function. I mean, right now, for most of the time, it it's, it does not function at all. It, you don't need to turn it down. Just doing the EVA for backup and then turn it down. So still not solve all the physical issue which we argue about the the charging and the solar array and uh, because we have a negative grounding at that time, some people want to um, you know go with positive grounding. So so back and forth. And um, uh, ion spotting and uh, all kind of corona definitely will scare people, you know, just like a scar the concern, which is a concern for sure. I don't know what his background, but definitely, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the shock is not what you want. Okay. And I do have a technical question about your batteries. Uh, <laughs> I do know that on Earth here, 
uh, lithium ion design, there, there's some concern, thermal concerns about extremely cold temperatures. I mean, without going into anything proprietary, did you have to design some uh, better thermal control for those batteries compared to the uh, with, uh, compared to the hydrogen-based batteries? Well, the um, uh, during the eclipse time, so the outside probably say minus 70 degrees C, okay, for example. So if my battery is operating, I'm okay. But if my battery is not operating, I need a heater and we do the put a heater inside. So okay. yeah, so that's the solve the, the low, that's kind of, you know, our concern is more on the high temperature side because lithium battery, it's the energy density is so high. And uh, if this, uh, we call thermal run away, it, it will be nasty. But even though in the vacuum environment, may not see a lot of chain reaction, but it, it, was, it will be nasty. If you check the energy density, of course, for the best, the uh, smallest one, the uh, lithium battery, it's about one third of energy density of the TNT. Right, right. And well, I mean, battery density keeps getting better all the yeah, time. Yeah, so, so you get a better and better. Actually, we are working on some new battery, even 50% better than the uh, lithium battery. So, so you do have a more and more concern about how you keep your battery safe. Excellent. Thank you, sir. It was a very good talk, by the way. I enjoyed it. Uh, Dr. Du, I don't know if you can see the Q&A box. There's a question from Randall. Oh, okay. Let's, can you talk about something? Well, I, I think the, uh, the first thing is the, uh, we need to have an um, international standard for the voltage. And uh, in the beginning, there's um, a little bit of argument between uh, Russian and American, what kind of voltage we should, we should have, you know, otherwise you cannot transport the, uh, the power back and forth. So that's how I would say probably, and, and that's tough to be. And uh, through the International Space Station, we set up international standard for the space exploration Everybody need to design to this one and 20 volts with a very special, we call the power quality. And the, the, uh, that's the requirement right now. Every time we, we set up the getaway or the PPE or this the lander, everybody go with this the, uh, standard. So that's, that's the good thing and out from the, uh, the space station. Secondly, and the, uh, I think the interface is so important. So this, you can see the recently more attention to the system engineering and the for space station, that's kind of pioneer. I think that at that time when we first time talking about system engineer and especially for military, it's, it's kind of relatively new during that time. But for space station, as Judy previously mentioned about, you know, when we, you know, when we, work on something that the other element already operate in space. So it's no way for us to, to match it. So this the way which we do the uh, interface, you know, with the CAD model, with the photo, it's, it's, uh, it's very much the, uh, um, you know, the important and the later, you know, turned to be everything 41 assembly, the uh, launch and uh, turned to be, went through very, very smoothly. Of course, may have a one or two 
some issue over there, which you know, people do not uh, uh, anticipate. But the, uh, so the system integration for the uh, interface definition, if you are going to go with the large assembly work in space is very critical. So I can see recently more system engineering integration the, uh, are more important for almost every program. So, so that's the other things the, um, uh, I don't want to call lesson learned because that's good things the, uh, which we carry on. So uh, what else, um, uh, as mentioned about the, for the solar array, and um, uh, we just, um, you know, the, we probably never think about, you know, you put a panel, which each one is made of the uh, kind of on the uh, substrate is a captain. And uh, when you store for a long time, and it's starting to stick it together. So when you deploy it, it will open for sure because by your mechanical force. But once you force it open in space, that means you, you have a vibration source. So that one will cause the, the, uh, the vibration. So that, that because in the beginning, the, uh, when we designed it, we never thought that we were stored on the uh, capitone panel inside the box. It's very tight the box uh, uh, for that long. So, so the um, uh, more about the material property uh, beyond our design schedule. And uh, we need to think about it. It's not just uh, postpone the, uh, the schedule and you have a cost issue, you have a schedule issue, but also some of the material and the hardware, uh, could they stand out alone uh, postpone? like a battery, you know, the, uh, the battery have a, have a cycle of life, they have a storage life, and you don't want to uh, extend that uh, the, uh, uh, your schedule and cost your battery, the uh, storage life cost your degradation. So we need to, once we have some the um, uh, schedule postponing, and we need to think about the uh, um, other technical impact and for the different hardware. So I, I can think about three. I don't know it's a car wafer or the uh, add a ghost stand and uh, you can add more. Yeah, I think your, your uh, presentation was very good, Chang. Very, very comprehensive. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, actually I have a question for you, Dr. Liu. Okay. Uh, sort of <laughs> may lead into my own presentation. I was very curious when you were uh, representing the challenges related to the beta angle uh, of the orbit and as that relates to power uh, storage. Um, my um, sort of interest in that is because I have uh, an interest in uh, access to live video from the space station. And I understand obviously during those high beta angle periods, the sun doesn't set for up to five days, between three and five days. And uh, what that has done for what I'm working on is uh, some of the experimentation has to be shut down. Yeah. Um, to account for, uh, you know, they need to be able to keep it cool, uh, not overheat. And I'm curious if you also, uh, you know, have to uh, undertake specific um, mitigation measures with uh, with with that period of the orbit as well. 
I don't know exactly what they do, and but we know when we first time learn about, don't forget previously, we did not go 51.6, they call Russian, okay, we, we changed it because they launch sites. So they must go with high inclination. Previous, just like every, every time, was a 28 degree. So, so suddenly we go to 51. So first time we found, oh, gee, that's right. Uh, solar beta 75, we don't see any um, um, uh, the night. So don't forget, that's a good thing for the solar array. You have alpha and beta gimbal. So you can turn any angle you want to, to avoid the, uh, uh, the temperature or to avoid the, uh, if anything, which you don't want to find, you know, directly see the, uh, see the solar array. So we did uh, recommend that way for operation. I don't know exactly how they do that, but we do know the, uh, during the uh, several some I think uh, twice a year, and we do have some the uh, uh, fully sun, sunlight the, uh, for several days. Yeah. Solar array is no problem. Yep. Uh, they, since the, uh, the PV module sitting outside the alpha gimbal, so they also can turn to edge on to the sun or to some angle, try, try not to be too cool and not to be too hot. Very good, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Larry, you, you want to say something? No, I just, yeah, I thought Chang did a great job on his presentation. Just want to congratulate him. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is Good job, good job, Chang. Okay, good, thank you. Hopefully uh, several years after we can come back talk about fishing surface. Definitely, definitely. And uh, this is so fantastic, yeah. Uh, we'll definitely work with you in the future, you know, for, for more uh, talks, the events. Okay, so um, uh, then our next speaker is uh, Mr. Liam Kennedy. All are welcome, you know, because this talk is actually very fun. You know, it's a gadget gizmo <laughs> Liam invented, it's fun. Uh, so, uh, so this, uh, get started. So uh, basically, let me do this. Uh, so uh, this, so uh, Mr. Leon Kennedy is the inventor of the ISS above. He's a former resident Orange County astronomers and the former Griffith Ob Observatory uh, planetarium lecturer. He's uh, also a former NASA JPL solar system ambassador. He, um, this ISS above is a single board computer device uh, using Raspberry Pi. Uh, that represent a rich set of live information about the ISS, including live video views of the Earth. Uh, what started as a weekend project in 2013 to build a cool gizmo to inspire his own uh, grandchildren, uh, now has been you know, shipped to the more than uh, 3,500 locations around the world, including private homes, schools, science centers, and uh, e even at uh, every NASA center nationwide. ISS Above is one of the edu education partners with ISS National Lab and receive a grant to support their use in 100 in of schools across the United States. So uh, that's a uh, welcome, uh, Mr. Leon Kennedy. Thank you so much for that introduction, Ken. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be on here again, uh, especially as it results, uh, is it, uh, it's coinciding with the 20th anniversary of uh, human beings uh, living and working on the International Space Station. And that takes me a little bit to why I've done what I've done. The actual little device that uh, Ken is talking about, this is the version of it right now. It's a little Raspberry Pi computer 
that uh, is tracking the space station. And every time the space station passes us by, um, it will do this. So you can see there's a very bright LED that lights up. Um, and the, you know, the reason I was doing that, Ken sort of mentioned a little bit about what I've done, um, you know, why I did it initially. Yeah, I wanted to be the cool grandpa <laughs> for my grandchildren. And uh, I wanted them to know not just whenever they could go outside and look up and see the International Space Station passing by, which um, I would gather quite a few people on this Zoom have probably done that. Uh, it's a very exciting thing. It never gets old. But more than that, uh, what I thought was a missing a missing piece that uh, often is, is not uh, readily understood is how frequently uh, the space station is passing overhead. Um, actually, during this uh, presentation so far, we have so far been a two-pass uh, space station uh, presentation. The space station was passing by just to the uh, west of uh, west of me in Los Angeles uh, at 10:30 a.m. and then on the next orbit it was a little bit further further out in the Pacific but nevertheless it was still above the horizon. And to me what that represents is really what we're celebrating today. It's not just uh, and I mean that uh, I put the quotes in there with full respect. Uh, to everyone who's been involved in maintaining and creating this uh, wonderful International Space Station. Um, it's not just a space station, it's the only place in space where human beings have been living and working permanently for the last 20 years. So every time, you know, my little box here goes off, um, you know, that represents that moment when you can remember, yeah, human beings are in space and they're above us. Um, so in, in doing this, uh, you know, you, I will say the other connection to uh, what makes uh, me hopefully a relevant uh, person to present uh, on this panel, uh, on this presentation today, is that by creating that little box, in 2013. It's afforded me a kind of access to NASA, to the ISS National Lab that I really didn't even dream about when I was first creating this for my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, certainly Ken mentioned it in, in my intro bio there. I'm one of 44 education partners with the ISS National Lab. So, um, you know, part of what was presented through previous pr presenters, I think Larry spoke to this uh, very well, is how the International Space Station has provided benefits to humanity. And one of the, of the main sort of pillars of those benefits to humanity is in the area of research, but also in the area of impact on education. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's part of, of where I go into it. I'm going to switch over to a little bit uh, of, a, of a presentation just so as I can take you through a few things that might be relevant here. But by all means, um, 
do interrupt me with uh, with questions. Don't feel as if you're interrupting me. I invite the interruptions. So if there's any part of what I'm sharing uh, strikes a question that you may have, uh, you you can certainly you know do the usual raise your hand or even if you have the ability to unmute yourself, just uh, just go straight in there. So let me just share a bit of my screen and. We'll get started on that. So uh, here we are. All right, so hopefully, uh, yes. So you are seeing my little screen here. I'm gonna shut that down just so it's a little bit bigger there. So uh, yeah, I wanted to mention a little bit about the context of the ISS National Lab and how and how that is relevant to what I'm doing right now. So yeah, it was mentioned the ISS National Lab was um, uh, really founded uh, as an entity in terms of how the International Space Station was operated by an act of Congress. And uh, some people may have uh, may refer to them as CASIS, which is the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space. Um, they're the nonprofit organization that were tasked by Congress to um, support commercialization of the International Space Station and uh, say one aspect of what it is that they are tasked with doing is to support outreach and public education. And that's really my involvement with, uh, with that side of things. Um, so I'm just gonna uh, click through things here a little bit. I'm just gonna go, I'm in the wrong place there. There we go. So <laughs> I wanted to give you a little bit of, a, uh, of an intro to the ISS above. I mentioned it. I, I held it up and showed it to you uh, so you got to see that it flashes every time the space station is passing by, but it does a lot more than that. So this little box is in many schools and science centers, private homes as well, uh, all around the world uh, with a big concentration across the USA, but it plugs into a TV. So it provides a lot of information uh, about the space station's location, where it, uh, obviously where it is, um, whether it's in daylight, it, it mentions the beta angle uh, in all of that as well. But it also goes through a lot more information showing you the crew who are up there right now and also has some news and other information. And then even more uh, sort of spectacularly is that it brings live views of the earth from the space station whenever the cameras that are up there are streaming live to the internet, which thankfully is uh, quite often. Uh, in fact, NASA just uh, launched a, a new um, streaming camera from the space station just this Friday. And I hope uh, when we go into daylight in a short while, I'll be able to feature some of that. Uh, currently, the space station is in darkness. Let me just uh, check my, uh, my screen here. Uh, sunrise in, oh, it, uh, actually we have just had sunrise. So in fact, I may, uh, in fact, if I switch over to this screen over here, you will actually get to see sunrise if I'm quick enough on my, there we go, and, and make myself disappear for a second. We are all watching live sunrise uh, on the space station. There it is. <laughs> 
that is literally the sunrise. In fact, if I stop my sharing um, just for a second, if I figure out, I'm going to stop the share so that my uh, video screen is, is live. So I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to view a sunrise um, live from the cameras on the space station, but this is it right now. So uh, usually there are 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets a day. Well, all barring like a few minutes. There's 15.9, I think, <laughs> orbits of the space station every day. So practically 16 every single day. The view that you're seeing right now is uh, from uh, one of the older camera systems that's on the space station. And this is streamed out using uh, U uh, Ustream uh, and it's called their ISS Live system. This particular stream features uh, live shots of cameras scattered around the, the external side of the station, but it also features sometimes views inside the station. We're currently looking at the forward facing view um, and uh, as the sun rises, you'll get to see that what's in the center of the screen there is the Canada arm. Um, this particular uh, live stream from NASA is uh, really interesting, but it can sometimes be extremely boring. Uh, and that's because when there are particular operations being done by the robo team, where they are uh, maneuvering external payloads uh, from one part of the station to another, it can often feature some very close up aspects of the space station that don't really give you necessarily, um, you know, a really good view of the earth. Uh, it just so happens right now that we, we were very lucky to be afforded this wonderful view of, uh, of the sunrise on the space station. And uh, if I hold on just a few seconds more, we, I may be able to switch to their secondary live video source. In fact, it is there right now, but it's, uh, it's not, not showing very much at the moment. So the other live video feed that NASA has is, uh, now from a newly installed camera, uh, and I'll just bring myself back on screen above this, it's on a newly installed camera that's out on the starboard truss. Um, that camera was installed in a recent EVA, I think Expedition 63 um, installed this camera, and they just positioned it on a fixed mount pointing nadir, so straight at the ground. And it now shows um, an area of the Earth about 180 miles across by around 120 miles uh, uh, up, so 180 miles wide, 110 miles deep. And if I was to switch to that camera view right now um, and make myself disappear, it's a little bit difficult to see what's going on. The space station is currently uh, just near Russia. I think it said the sea of, uh, every now and again, you'll see the place name or the ocean or sea that is below the space station. What is actually, this is really cool because there are two very bright objects in there. The, the object at the top right is a uh, part of the station structure um, just below where this camera is. But the item in the uh, lower right there is something that is obviously very relevant to the talk that we just had. Uh, that is showing one of the solar panels. 
and uh, now hopefully you're also starting to see just below the station is where um, the earth below is now showing uh, some uh, sun. So uh, the sun has risen over that to that sea of, I wished I know how, knew how to pronounce that sea. Does anyone speak Russian? Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's where it is going over right now. And you're seeing the ocean with some clouds over it. Um, anyhow, I wanted to, while that was, uh, that was happening, I wanted to at least uh, reference the live video feed that's going on right now. Obviously, the, uh, the reflection of the sun off the uh, station structure there is, is somewhat overwhelming the, uh, the camera sense there. But nevertheless, um, yeah, so all of these, yeah, all of these camera views are available on the web. Uh, there are two of them. In fact, uh, if you just give me a second, I will actually put them put them into the, the chat. Um, they're all on Ustream. So this, uh, this particular link is to the previous video stream that I was showing. Yeah, that's gone to all attendees. And then the current one that I've got showing behind me is uh, this one right here. Here we go. Um, so those are the two links to the live stream. So yes, you can absolutely just uh, go and watch these for yourselves. They're, they're, they're available on the NASA app as well. So if you have a smartphone, just simply uh, install the NASA app. There are several others as well that will do that too. Um, and just to give you a little bit more info around, you know, what, why on earth would I go to the trouble of creating this physical device to track the space station, when of course we all know that we can track it on websites and we can track it on our smartphones. So what's the specific utility of, uh, of having it on a physical device? And um, for that, I'm now just going to switch back to um, showing my, uh, my screen here. So let me share my screen again, go back to the, the presentation. And I'll just uh, flick through a few things here. Um, so that shows uh, an arrangement of the displays that are on there. But again, you know, a lot of this you can get from information that's freely available on the web, including the video. So um, I mainly created this product so that it would be something that can be plugged into a physical display in uh, visible in the in the place where you're at, and it would be an inexpensive device. You know that um, you can, if you're into Raspberry Pis, you, you know if you've already got a Raspberry Pi. I know you know certain people. That's what they do. They only cost about thirty dollars, and then you add a power supply. You can add the LED, and my software. You could just purchase that software, so it can be a very inexpensive thing. But what I primarily wanted this for was to be a marquee display in a location where people can go along and be uh, impacted by the view of all of this information, especially the live video feed. Um, you know, I love that I can view this on my phone, but my phone is usually in my pocket and I've got many other uses for it. Whereas if I am in a 
in an area where it's appropriate to have a full-time display of this. It means that you can be exposed to aspects of life and work on the space station in ways that just would not be possible if you were relying upon remembering to pick up your phone and check what's going on or to bring up a web page and go and bring up this information. So um, where that leaves me is where I have personally uh, spent, um, you know, really the bulk of my, my time in my last uh, five, or, since 2013, really the, the school deployments happened, um, you know, from mid 2014 onwards. So, you know, we're talking about a good six years of my life um, where I mainly focused on having ISS Aboves installed or in schools. And what this slide is showing you is, uh, is a whole bunch of places in schools where you'll find them across the USA. It's a little bit difficult to see some of the concentrations there. That there's a lot more in the LA region than you see on this particular Zoom level. But you'll see I've got them everywhere. Uh, the furthest north is actually in a school in Alaska. Um, and those of you here that understand the orbital um, sort of mechanics involved uh, of, the, of the space station's orbit, um, if you're in Alaska and you're about 64 degrees, I think, the space station almost, you know, it will always be to your south in the sky and it will hardly ever be visible. However, it is still in your sky. And uh, the students that were at that little school in Alaska still appreciated, um, you know, their inclusion in this uh, information source related to the space station. Um, yeah, that's uh, showing, you know, how did I initially get started on this? It was actually just accidental. Uh, Ken mentioned that I created this for my grandchildren, and that's that was precisely what, why I did it. I, I wanted to, my grandchildren, I have six of them now, uh, five of them are in the UK, and one of them is here locally here, he lives in Irvine, and he was three at the time, but I wanted to be that cool grandpa. So how do I move from just creating one for my grandkids to now they're in three and a half location, three and a half thousand locations worldwide. Um, I did that because um, I, I started development actually at a uh, coffee place, <laughs> a coffee shop in Pasadena, where I used to take my dog every day. And I would, uh, I was just working on the initial coding while I was having coffee inside this, uh, this uh, coffee shop. It's called Ginger Corner Market. It's just north of the campus of Caltech. And um, rather uh, just accidentally, I had some folks visiting the, the coffee shop who happened to be working on experiments that were on the space station. And they, quite liked the idea that my little box lit up every time their experiment was above the coffee shop. <laughs> and they said, how do I get one? And from that, someone else said, oh, you should take this to a, um, a maker fair and show people what this is doing. And, and what I'm showing you on this particular uh, view right here at this moment is a poster that I created that had the initial version of my ISS above using the very first model of a Raspberry Pi computer. 
and uh, it it was stuck on the sidewall of Ginger Corner Market and lit up every time it went by. Just provided some information. At this time, it didn't even display any information other than just light up. So it was really just uh, just a, a cool little gizmo that that had an LED on it and explaining a little bit about it. But nevertheless, I sort of understood there were a lot of people interested in this far more than I uh, even imagined. And then I decided to launch a Kickstarter, which is a crowdfunding program. And it seemed that people were interested in this in the media. What I'm showing on this slide is a whole bunch of, of uh, websites, um, uh, journal articles that were posted, um, uh, uh, interviews that I had on video podcasts that really, uh, one of them was on a radio show. Um, and all of that resulted in my product was, uh, my Kickstarter was successful within three days, it got funded, and I shipped around 300 of them. Um, this was in uh, April of 2014. Uh, showing another Hackaday, this, this was a, one of those um, websites that features little cool projects that, uh, um, you know, people like me create. Um, this, this is showing my wife, Anna, uh, at the early days. Uh, this, this does not really give the full story of what my wife actually does in her real life. Uh, she's actually a, um, uh, a coach CEO, a coach of CEOs, just uh, works with um, you know, large businesses, small businesses in how they're running their business. But this time, uh, this was her being my QA and assembly and shipping. Um, for all of those Kickstarter units. Um, very early on, I've done a lot of uh, work with the Planetary Society. I've been a member since um, the early, the late 1990s. I met Bill Nye and uh, I, I was doing various things with the Planetary Society. And one day Bill saw what I was creating. They had one of my units in their conference room. And he said, okay, Liam, I wanna buy one of these. Uh, and I said, oh, well, if it's you, Bill, I'll just give you one. But he said, no, here's my credit card. Uh, I want to buy them. And then he got so enamored with what the ISS above was providing, the, um, the video, uh, access to video, the live views of the earth. This is what he said about the ISS above in, a, in an article on the Wall Street Journal. So I think the day after that was in the Wall Street Journal, I had a, a, over a hundred orders for my little box. Um, uh, very surprised by that. I, I had no idea Bill was going to be doing that, but uh, very grateful for his support at that time. Bearing in mind that he's literally a customer. He bought these from me. <laughs> but never, nevertheless, that then led into other parts of the story here. I'm just gonna uh, scoot forward. And at the moment, I don't see the chat, so I might... Uh, just bring that up. Uh, anyway, so uh, hopefully I'm not missing any questions. Um, so what I'm showing you here is, uh, you know, what have I spent my time on after creating that successful Kickstarter? Um, I found that people who were getting it found their own uses for how the ISS above would feature into what they're doing. 
part of what I spent my time uh, on was visiting maker fairs and uh, exhibiting at uh, various school conferences. And this particular screen, one of the ones I'm most proud of is that photo in the lower right. Uh, that is actually showing a bunch of students sitting, uh, standing on a stage at Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. And they uh, were just preparing to have a live ham radio connection with uh, an astronaut on the International Space Station. And uh, they decided to use, uh, the people who are running that decided to use an ISS above uh, to help the, the students and the audience know where the space station was. And particularly as it was passing by, uh, it kept uh, track of, uh, of where the space station was and essentially operated like a, um, a, a, an indicator of how long the contact was. So each of those students on that stage got to interview um, an astronaut uh, as they were passing by live. Um, you know, I had no idea that that's how it would uh, end up being used. And uh, but very, very pleased when that would happen. And now um, with COVID and such like, they do a lot of these remotely. However, so students are on Zoom, uh, but they do a telebridge type connection to uh, the uh, an astronaut. Um, but they often use ISS above as the means by which they, they share where the space station is. So I'm really impressed by that. Um, so, some other, again, <laughs> totally unexpected thing is um, I was approached by someone uh, who works on the facility side of Johnson Space Center and he wanted to use my product the ISS above to light up um, a set of uh, LEDs underneath a canopy to one of the entrances to Johnson Space Center this is showing you um, the the my device that I, I custom built a little bit uh, just based around some of the security requirements that NASA had for devices on their network um, and uh, it, it's literally just a very simple Raspberry Pi with a connection into a relay and that information on the lower right the the uh, the photo on the lower right right here is me getting up at 4 30 a.m in the morning um, I could see this from, from the hotel I was staying at, which was the Hilton, just about a mile and a half away from, from this gate. And uh, sure enough, it came on perfectly at the right time. And then I ran over and uh, took a photo of, uh, of, it, of it going on. Again, totally unexpected that that would happen. Um, here is showing you a few other examples of me being at local schools. This is uh, me presenting to students at a, a Monrovia High School and uh, other examples of, of it being used here. The, these are at museums. Um, this, uh, the, the photo on the right is at the, muse the Muse Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa, Florida. And they created a, a very custom museum grade um, exhibit of the ISS above. Uh, I was very impressed with what they did. And the photo on the left is, uh, is the ISS above at, at a local library, uh, actually in my hometown right now. I live in Monrovia. That is at the Monrovia Library. Uh, someone donated, uh, donated a, a device and, and the TV to the, to the library. So uh, that's often something that happens. Um, 
So I've talked a lot about, uh, you know, how I have supported the outreach efforts related to ISS above, but I haven't talked a lot about um, what is going on here. Uh, and this is representing uh, a very early connection I was allowed to make with, um, with NASA. So uh, as you've already know with the, with the video that, I, that I've been sharing going on behind me here, uh, the, the video feed from NASA is all the result of this person here on the left of this screen. This is Carlos Fontenot. He's the ISS imagery manager at Johnson Space Center. And he and the co-principal investigator, Susan Runco, um, in 2014, when they started streaming that live video feed, I decided to see if I could reach out to Carlos and to Sue. And it's because, um, I, although I loved what they were doing, um, I thought they might be interested in how ISS Above was reusing their, um, their particular um, output from the space station. And this photo is showing me, you see I've got the biggest grin in the world there. That's because um, this is me presenting for the first time a poster at the ISS R&D conference. And this was in Boston in 2015. Uh, and as you can see, I was uh, poster number 36 and poster number 35 right next to me was uh, was Carlos Fontenon. Um, it, it sort of tickled me no end that uh, um, how NASA engineered that, that this was going to be the case. So uh, I didn't request this. Uh, Carlos actually said, oh, this dude is creating something that is adding value to HDEV, the high definition earth viewing experiment. So he put me right beside him. And I've stayed very, very much connected to uh, Carlos and others at Johnson Space Center ever since then. Um, and so where are we going next? That That's just the top of, uh, of that poster presentation. I'm just going to quickly go through some other screens here. Yeah, I wanted to show Susan Runco. Uh, this was in 2015. Yeah, sort of shortly after the ISS R&D conference, um, they invited me uh, over to Johnson Space Center and they took me behind the scenes. Um, on the right, that, that is the mission, mission operations room at JPL. And in the top left, you may be just able to see that there is an image that uh, that uh, monitor is displaying an output from a special version of ISS above that I developed that showed um, multiple uh, live views from the station along with uh, the ISS above information screens. So very proud that it's being there. Uh, yeah, we, we mentioned um, the one-year mission uh, previously. This was when I met Scott Kelly. Um, and then on the right, that was when I met the three people that launched um, uh, on the spacecraft that Scott was on, the Soyuz. Uh, Gennady Padalka is the Russian astronaut to my left. Um, and, uh, and then Mikhail Kornienko is on the far right over there on that photo. So Gennady is the one who holds the world record for the most number of days in space across uh, all missions that he's been up on the station with. So extraordinary opportunity there. Um, 
Just what, so yeah, uh, who here has a space ant agreement with NASA? I'm sure uh, Aerojet uh, Rocketdyne has one. Uh, well, I have one too. <laughs> just this little thing here, I just wanted to show that off. It's, it's a non-reimbursable space ant agreement, um, just related to all of the outreach that I've been in, involved with. Um, little summary there. I wanted to give you a little insight into how it's been used in schools. Um, this is an example of it, of it used in a, a school. Uh, I think that's, yeah, Barrett Elementary there in Virginia. And um, here, what's going on is the teacher is proudly sharing how their students are helping teach younger grades uh, about the space station, and particularly in relation to a, a pass of the space station. And uh, over here, I'm at a school there presenting on the left. That's actually Hamilton Elementary. Um, randomly, that's the school that Van Halen went to in Pasadena. <laughs> I only just found that out. Uh, random aside, um, some other examples here. What? I, so I mentioned that, uh, that, you know, I have this product and I'm now an education partner with the ISS National Lab. What this photo represents is a partnership I've got with one of the other partners. Uh, this is an organization called Magnitude IO and they have an experiment platform, uh, biological, but usually uh, astrobiology. So it's uh, plant-based uh, experiments that go up to the station and schools get a duplicate, an analog version of the exact same uh, experiment and it allows students to run their own version of the experiment with gra gravity and with the different, slightly different uh, uh, in terms of carbon dioxide and other um, uh, temperature. Uh, and they get to compare their experiment with the one in space. So that's another example of how education on the space station impacts students on the ground. Um, yeah, that's probably... These are just all nice little testimonials. Um, uh, so I wanted to finish with this, um, which is where I'm going next. Um, and I, I'm gonna draw your attention to item number two on that list, which is my own space camera on the ISS. So I, I don't think I have any more on there. So I wanted to finish by telling you a little bit more about that because uh, uh, I, I want to sort of ask for help and ideas about this, but I'll tell you precisely more about that in just a second. So I'm going to stop sharing and we'll go back to me again. Um, I hope that was interesting. Yeah, now I've stopped sharing my screen. I can see all of the comments that you'd be making. I'm sorry I couldn't uh, contact, uh, sort of respond to that live. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So very quickly, I just wanted to, so I am in serious conversations with several organizations about getting a, a, a new external UHD camera on the space station. And uh, it's, uh, I'm having conversations with uh, Airbus uh, because the place I want this camera to be is run by them. It's the new Bartolomeo platform, which is on the front of the Columbus module that has the perfect view of the sky uh, below the space station. Uh, and there's a, there's a camera, a space camera company that's based in the UK that has the perfect wide field view uh, camera that is steerable. 
that uh, I'm looking to use, and it will only cost about one and a half million dollars to get it up there. So I think you, <laughs> yeah, one and a half million. It might, that might sound a lot of money, but I'm hoping in the context of the folks who are represented here, that's like a tiny, tiny amount of money. <laughs> yeah, that's right, just $1 million. <laughs> Those of you, uh, you may not be able to see Jay was just doing, the, doing that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Anyhow, I, I'll sort of open it up to any questions. Um, you know, I'll, uh, obviously to me, this is a very important milestone, um, you know, to all of us really. All of you, that the presentations that were on here and many of you who are uh, working in this space, you have literally made what is we're celebrating possible, um, and and that's the thing that I that I've got from all my work in this space is honoring the expertise and the effort of so many people on the ground, um, where everything that they have done has made. Um, the ISS with human beings living safely in space possible. And uh, uh, you just don't get enough praise. And I am always certain to uh, represent that, uh, that, that particular uh, view to every school presentation I personally make, and now a lot of virtual ones. I, I represent uh, you. Uh, in those in those meetings, astronauts, yes, they're they're an important part of that. But uh, even more so, what I represent is what it takes to have them there, and you represent that, um, and that's the possibility that I see there for students now as well. Is uh, understanding they don't just have to become an astronaut, you know, to do this cool stuff. They can be engineers. They can be artists and designers, applying their craft to um, design, to uh, nutrition, uh, to uh, you know many other areas too. Anyhow, any other questions? <laughs> yeah, any questions? <laughs> Well, uh, I suppose, I don't know, did, did you ever think it would be like this uh, when you first started? I had no idea. Um, uh, so really good question. Uh, the simple answer to that is sort of like when I started getting people saying, um, yeah, you should show this to more people. Uh, how do I get one? Um, and I thought of, well, what would it take for me to do that? Because, you know, I can't just build one and ship it based on an order. So I decided to put this Kickstarter program out there. And I, and I went with that Kickstarter with a hope that it, would, that it would work, that it would be funded. However, I remember stating to people, you know, about what I was doing that was, you know, it doesn't, I'm committed that it uh, that it's funded. However, I'm interested to see what people think about this. And if it fails, then that's okay. So at that time, I had no idea where it was gonna end up. Um, and the first time I received a contact from Johnson Space Center, it was around, it was during the Kickstarter. And someone from public affairs sent me an email saying they were, they'd heard about it and they were interested about it. At that point, I began to think, oh, 
it's not necessarily just me out here doing this stuff. There are people who are inside this world who, you know, are interested and are also supporters of what I'm doing. And, and that's what I discovered um, that, uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, users in Houston who work on the program. So, you know, and that's a, uh, you know, I've got someone who works, uh, works on the scheduling system that astronauts use. So she is uh, in charge of, of uh, the, um, I guess it's the iPad scheduling system that astronauts sort of work on. Um, also, I think uh, on their journaling system. Um, so you, you sort of get to know, uh, you know, the, the pieces that make up the whole. And I had no idea that that would be accessible to this dude who's just in his office, despite this, despite this green screen, you know, I'm just in my messy office in Monrovia. And uh, I've only really been involved in, you know, the public outreach side of space education. Um, you know, never anticipated that I'd be seriously scoping out a project um, to get uh, my own UHD camera on the space station. That's a testament to what was created 20 years ago and is now, I literally, if I just have the right money, <laughs> I can literally put this UHD camera on the space station. I know everything that, that's needed to make that happen. Um, and who would have believed that was possible from creating a funky little gadget for my grandchildren? You know, this was the original model. It was a 3D printed uh, design. Uh, case in the original Raspberry Pi there. <laughs> Anyhow, thanks for that question. Loved it. Um, I see someone mentioned that they love the time-lapse videos of thunderstorms. Yeah, I have a, a few examples of those. Uh, this particular camera, uh, this, is, this is capable of capturing thunderstorms. You'll see electrical storms. Um, the previous ones were not capable of doing that. Their exposure was fixed to some extent. Um, but this one, which is called the EHDC camera, uh, it auto exposes. And uh, during nighttime, if it's going over an area with uh, electrical storms below, you'll see that from the space station. So that'll be very cool when that happens. Um, so, and you will also be, be able to see city lights as well. So, and the UHD camera that I'm planning on, on uh, having that become a reality, that will be capable of capturing Aurora uh, live. Um, it won't necessarily be full frame rate at that point, just the exposure will need to essentially operate a, a lower frame rate, uh, increase the, the shutter, uh, decrease the shutter speed. So um, longer exposure for each frame, and then we'll be able to show live Aurora. When that's uh, when that's possible to see. Uh, anything else I've missed here? Yeah. Okay, uh, you know that's uh, that's that's where I'm at anyway. Um, and uh, if any of you have any further questions, um, I'd happy to to answer them. Let's say uh, who uh, I'm curious. Um, Dr. Liu, have you have you done presentations at the ISS R and D quest, uh, conference? And you're you're muted right now. Just uh, mm. 
They got, yeah. Actually, uh, uh, several years ago, I cannot remember, you know, it's a very hot day. I, I remember that well. Yeah. <laughs> when I walk out of that building, I, my glasses is, is <laughs> so I cannot see anything. In <laughs> that time, uh, it's more about the, um, actually, we propose to build some kind of a little bit, of, we call the uh, uh, test the uh, uh, facility and the test the electric propulsion, test the uh, uh, solar array technology, probably mm -hmm. several years ago. Actually, it was uh, NASA previous program as part of our International Space Station, but that time they canceled. So I kind of talked a little bit over there. And mm -hmm. uh, as I talk and uh, uh, the Boeing BD people come to me saying, at that time, we're already separate from Boeing, he say, I didn't know you guys do that much. I said, wait a minute, we were part of you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. So so that was a few years ago that you were at the ISS yeah. R&D. Yeah, yeah, so I've been to the last, uh, every, every one of the last since 2015. So if it was between, during those times, um, you know, I presented at, uh, at at five ISS R&D presentations, both oral presentations and uh, um, and also two poster presentations. But I found that, you know, as an outsider, you know, who I consider myself to be, I found the 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 whole setup of the ISS R&D uh, conferences really inspiring, and it really gave such a broad view to how business. Is conducted on the space station across agencies, um, and they just recently uh, completed their virtual ISS R&D. Not surprisingly, this year's ISS R&D uh, in person was cancelled, so they switched to a virtual one. But uh, I, you know, that's what I really get. You know, we got another really deep view into just the the power side of uh, of the space station. And that's what you get when you go to an ISS R&D conference is you see the broad array of expertise that has to be um, spent, um, you know, put forward to solve the problems that are related to human spaceflight in particular. So yeah. thank you very much for sharing all of that. Thank you. All right, so the mm -hmm. the application actually you mentioned about yeah. the since Dr. Lu is here. So is this the, the, the camera you are using now up there? Are they 24-7? And what kind of power uh, uh usage is this? And uh also are they using the Aerojet rocket gun power system? Do you, do you know? Uh, yeah, so this particular camera, I, I won't necessarily know all of the details about that, but the information is, so if you were to Google, uh, it's it's NASA's EHDC camera, which is actually a modified Nikon uh, inside a specialized housing. So, uh, and um, I think every, uh, you know, every payload, external or otherwise is a, a essentially utilizing the the standard power distribution system on the space station it is um on 24 7. Mm -hmm. so uh, if oh in fact right behind me this is uh if i just uh you know magic myself away uh, this is a period of loss of signal um so this is a standard uh 
expected uh, part of communications downtime uh, for the space station, uh, the TDRA satellite network is, it might just be a couple of minutes, it might be a little bit longer. Um, but nevertheless, the, the actual camera is still active and streaming 24-7. Um, and uh, yeah, is there anything more to say about that? Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, so it utilizes the the, the standard power bus. Um, my connection on the power side to do with the camera project, of course, is that we uh, that camera will plug into uh, the Airbus Bartolomeo platform on the Columbus module. So that sort of exposes the the whole um, interagency sort of negotiations that go on uh, with regards to that. In fact, the previous camera system uh, that, that, uh, that I was first using called HDEV, it was on that Columbus external uh, platform just at the front um, of the station. Uh, so before Bartolomeo was there, so it was plugged into their power structure. And interestingly, uh, related to the power side of things, there were moments when they had to do a full power reset of that experiment payload. Um, you know, it was mostly autonomous and, uh, you know, the system could recover from most uh, events. However, there were occasional moments where they really needed to pull the power and there was no on-off switch that was related to just that unit. So if ever they needed to do that, uh, the NASA folks needed to co coordinate with ESA to say, uh, to have them switched out, switch off the entire sort of strand of power out to that unit, which would mean about a dozen other experiments would need to be interrupted. So uh, they, they couldn't just, you know, yeah, turn it off and on again. Uh, they had to turn the whole um, power link down. So uh, that was a, a fun uh, thing that they had to worry about. Um, and also that HDEV experiment, they would occasionally switch it off in high beta when, uh, uh, when you know, to keep it from getting overheated. Although it did have its own um, heating elements, it, uh, um, it could get overheated. Uh, but there we go. Very cool. Well, that, that, that may be the conclusion of, uh, of my part of the presentation. I am very bad at keeping track of time, so I have no idea whether this is late or early, <laughs> but uh, I, I very much appreciate the opportunity of being on here. Um, you can check out my website at issabove.com and my email address is liam at issabove.com. And uh, hopefully you'll be hearing a lot more about my UHD camera project uh, in the not too distant future when we've managed to sign contracts and get to get more of that detail worked out. Uh, thank you all. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Lu, you want to say something? No, 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 I, I really appreciate it. I think that's definitely would be a very good and let everybody participate. And, uh, you know, just, uh, some, sometimes the, uh, we, Forget it. There are some people, you know, above us and uh, just uh, passing us. Yeah, let's give us more responsibility. We need to make sure they are safe. You know, that's that's mm -hmm. ultimate you know, goal for those people who are working on the space program. Yeah. Oh yeah. That remember the story I shared about when I met Bob Benkin.
at, uh, at a local factory in Chatsworth, they purchased an ISS above so that their employees knew every time uh, the space station containing the people that they had to protect with their work uh, were above the factory. So uh, uh, I was so inspired by that whole context. And I think, uh, is it Julie who, who works in that area? Uh, you know, on the astronaut awareness for Rocketdyne and others, it is a very important aspect of of, uh, of how that's done because you know you can think that you're just you are just building a battery, but no, there's no just <laughs> building a battery when it's uh, involved in humans in spaceflight. And at that time, I had no idea that Bob Benken would be. Uh, part of the team that I don't know whether that particular battery was the one that he because he did a spacewalk um, and he you know and they were doing one of the battery swaps uh, while he was up there with the DM2 mission as well so I'm not sh I, I suddenly wondered oh wow is that the same battery that he was talking about when he went to this factory um, in Chatsworth I just I just thought it was such an amazing coincidence that that was the case that was back in 2016 uh, when I when I went to that factory. So, fast forward four years, and uh, he's literally installing one of those batteries, probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Uh, so, if no more questions, so this is really amazing. You know, uh, this fun and uh, uh, very inspiring. So. Um, yeah, uh, once again, thank you everyone and uh, happy 20th anniversary of ISS. Really fun, it's amazing, celebrating and uh, happy Halloween. <laughs> so, <laughs> hope we can celebrate this on ISS some days too, uh, using the um, ca camera. Yeah. Okay, thank you everyone and stay tuned with AIAA. We'll continue to do our best uh, to work with uh, uh, our great speaker panelists and uh, to give you an uh, update and uh, exciting uh, aerospace activities, especially the ISS. <clears throat> okay, thank you very much again. Appreciate it. Uh, have a wonderful, uh, you know, celebration, anniversary, Halloween, and uh, Saturday weekend. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I guess we're still here until until we get kicked off. It was nice chatting with you, Jay. Uh, I want to look look out at your uh, your books, uh, whatever that you've got going on. That's right, Jay. Your books, you know. Yeah. Well, technically, right now it's book. Book. Uh, oh, there we go. Yeah. Let's have a look at that. Outposts on the frontier. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Fifty year history of space stations. I mean, I go back to uh, the history kind of.